Hey folks, welcome to episode two of The Virtual World. On this episode, I was joined by an old acquaintance, Jay Hilton. I can definitely say that I now consider him a true friend. We had a great conversation about his background, how he got into technology, and our opinions about a myriad of technologies and infrastructure choices. Please enjoy. All right, uh, so it is July 2nd, 2020, 7.49 p.m. EST, and I'm sitting here with Jay Helton. Uh, he is not necessarily an old coworker, although we did work from the same company, um, but we never got to work on a project together. But we did have a lot of uh, little discussions in the background. How you doing, man? I'm good. I'm good. Thanks for having me. Yeah, for sure. What you been up to? Uh, unfortunately, not too much. You, uh, the world's kind of in complete chaos right now, so so nothing too exciting going on. Um, we we I had to do some traveling through the Midwest for the last couple of weeks, so now we are self quarantining, which you would think is pretty much the same as the last three months, but a little bit more rough. When, when you say that, what are you trying to just stay clear of your, uh, your kid? Uh, well, no, we're kind of self quarantining together. So we all had to travel. Uh, but instead of actually going into stores, we're doing everything like pickup where we're not like interacting with any of the employees. Aldi has a pretty awesome, like Instacart. I don't know if you've used Instacart before, but it's a little... Oh, yeah. It's I'm, I'm familiar with all of the delivery services. Yeah. So we used to do Kroger pickup all the time. Uh, and then we realized how much money we actually end up not saving by shopping at Kroger. So we just would go to Aldi's. And then Aldi now has Instacart, which is revolutionary. Yeah, I think Instacart might be a separate company because there's a, there's a bunch of companies that use it down here. Yeah, I, I'm pretty sure it is. And I'm not entirely sure how they're making money off of it because it only cost me like two bucks to do this Instacart. And they don't even give you an option to tip. So I yeah, my, I, I've actually thought about this a lot. I, I kind of, I've got this theory running that maybe they have deals with the companies so like down here, the, the place to shop is Publix. And so my, my thought is that they, you know, they talk to Publix first and they're like, you know, we'll take 10% commission. And then they probably give a lot of that to the driver. That's the only way that makes sense. Like the driver has to be making decent money. But if you think about it, even if, even if Instacart or companies like that are taking 10, 15, 20 cents a dollar per transaction, they're probably still making an insane amount of money. Yeah, there had to have been somebody cranking out the the financials being like, okay, like if if we accept this service, we are going to increase our sales by this much. So therefore, it makes sense for us to pay them this much to allow it. Yeah, there's there's got to be something in it for the drivers too. They can't be making 35 cents per trip. It doesn't even make any sense. No, God, no. Especially if they don't allow tips. Like I, I couldn't give tips through the, uh, through the app at all. And I'm not gonna about. I'm not about to go start handing people money during a pandemic. Maybe if you spray it with something first, leave it out in the right. sun. Okay, so you mean like you're not anti-tipping? You're just not gonna physically hand somebody some dollar bills and be like, "Catch my germs." Yeah, yeah. That was, and I never carry cash. We we just assumed that whenever we did Instacart pickup, that we would be able to leave a tip through the app. But no. So next time I'll have to leave like some dollar bills out in the sun for a couple minutes. Makes sense kill the virus you know for sure yeah 
So uh, have you been doing it? I don't know. Don't don't feel free not to, to skip over um, anything too incriminating, but you've been doing anything outside of uh, your full time gig. You've been doing any side work or anything for the past couple of months? Um, no, the the side work that I had going on, uh, which was working on a kind of like a fitness platform uh, that kind of wrapped up and we me and the, the guy that I was working with on that have a have a couple ideas, but nothing has really taken off. Um, mainly because we don't necessarily have the time at the moment with, with how hectic everything is. And he was going through some, some life changes. So I've just kind of settled down a little bit. Uh, but I have been doing a lot of stuff through Udacity and just, you know, scratching some general, um, like tech based itches that I've had. Um, one thing that me and a, a couple of friends have been doing, are you familiar with the, uh, daily programmer subreddit? No, no, I actually steer pretty clear of uh, all social media. Oh, that's um, very smart of you to do. Uh, although I, I will say lately, we can get into this later, but there's some, there some crazy stuff going on in the world outside of like the, the crazy social stuff that was already there and then the, the virus. But I mean, it's like things have gone up another notch here in the last couple of days. I don't know if you've been following stuff, but... Yeah, I, I keep up with the news. I, I stay clear of pretty much all social media. I do browse like the news and like the top articles of Reddit, but I don't, I don't dive in. I, it's too depressing most of the time or just infuriating. For sure. I actually, um, I, I went through a phase maybe a year ago where I cut social media out of my life completely and it was awesome. And I'd been thinking about doing it for a while and I'd even kind of done some, uh, you know, sort of test runs of that in my life a couple of times. Um, but I found myself, uh, you know, I do a lot of music stuff and I found myself really wanting to find musicians and kind of ended up that Facebook is the place where these folks congregate nowadays, which is it makes me sad because Facebook is probably the uh, the most evil of all the platforms right now. Um, but I've also been getting into Twitter mainly just because, you know, I've got the podcast going. I'm trying to kind of start a business and I I just feel like I need to get some following going. And unfortunately, that's kind of how you do it nowadays. Yeah, I'm with you. So I, I do have a Twitter. I'm not super active on it, but it's pretty much strictly just so I can uh, communicate with people who do listen to the art, like the video game podcast that I do. And that's pretty much where it stops. I mean, every now and then I'll post a something maybe uh, tech related, but I I just can't get into politics on social media. Yeah, same. And I, I mean, I have. I've fallen victim to that in the past, and I've gotten into some pretty nasty conversations. But uh, I've realized that it's it's more just like who can be more mean and like nobody's really there to kind of learn and grow. So I definitely got away from that. Yeah, so I it, I have been off of Facebook uh, for um, six months now. I'd say six months, about six months ago is whenever I um, deactivated my Facebook. And it was pretty much just stemmed from a stupid back and forth that I had with my dad. My, my dad is like hyper Republican uh, and he's very condescending. And so I had just made a Facebook post about how most people misinterpret what, what social, um, what, yeah, what social democracy is. And he started to try to educate me about like what a Republic is and was pulling out definitions of, from like a kid's dictionary and saying how he had to, educate his kids and stuff like that and i don't know it was quite offensive my I, my dad wasn't around growing up so uh 
it it triggered me pretty heavily and so i decided oh, to yeah. just get away from facebook yeah. fuck that like how how fucking dare you talk down to me yeah. oh man yeah that uh, would it, get me ruffled pretty it, hard it it frustrates me so bad because i'm also like i'm not super great with conflict uh I, I i tend to be a people pleaser all around it's, it's how i've kind of gotten myself into some really crappy scenarios um especially so i don't know if you know this about me but i, I was like involved with a really religious group for like seven years um my wife grew up in a religious group and so whenever i met her i kind of was going through a rough point in my life um my my mom had just been thrown in prison and my dad wasn't around and it, I was kind of like a very easy prey to like the typical religious organization, you know, struggling kid who, you know, just wants some kind of stability. Um, and so I got involved and it was a, um, have you heard of Pentecostal? Honestly, I'm like super not hip on any of the religious stuff. So it's very like, like skirts, long hair, um, guys can't wear tank tops or shorts, no tattoos, no, no piercings. It's, it's so very, very, very conservative. Yes, it, it is very conservative. And so we, we spent about seven years there and the entire time I was like, we were all pretty much pretty skeptical of it the entire time. But for some reason I have like this, this built in need to be a people pleaser and it ended up getting me into like these predicaments where I was like playing music for the church and I was teaching Sunday school and like, like doing all these things where internally I'm like, I, I don't know why I'm doing this at all. Um, but finally, like a few years ago or right around three years ago, we were just like, okay, that's enough. I like, and within two weeks of making that decision, I had a job and we just moved to Michigan and just stopped we were able to uh to get away but it like looking back i'm kind of like ah oh, man like i wish i would have been able to just you know stand my ground maybe maybe i wouldn't have been been such a uh i don't know easy person to walk all over yeah that's that's actually a, a crazy story um i definitely want to you know i feel now i feel kind of strange that we haven't really got to know each other very much um and i i will say you you listened to my last podcast Hey, I'm just being completely honest and open here because I want to, uh, I want to like call myself out for making mistakes. And so, if you li you listen to my last podcast, I know, and and I definitely have kind of like this idea of like the elitist programmer, and I totally may have kind of lumped you into that, at least like very tangentially. You know, like you weren't a, a bad person or a negative person, but I just sort of like assumed white dude in software, like this guy's probably from that same group. Because I like Angular, right? Is that the problem? It, it's be, it, honestly, <laughs> there was this day where I was like, man, observables suck. And you were like, observables are great. And I was like, nah, not this guy. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so just calling myself out there, like for, for not only like I, you know, being someone that's hardcore about kind of identifying the social stigmas that come with the field, but also on the other side, kind of having my own issues and struggling to, to really see people for who they are. Um, so I think it's just kind of, it's good to call that out. So 90% of the time I love everything. <laughs> so like, like if somebody says I hate angular, I'm usually like, Oh, I love angular. If somebody says I hate react, I'm usually like, Oh, I love react. If someone says like, I hate .NET core, I'm usually like, Oh, .NET core is pretty great. <laughs> I mean, for the most part, um, 
I am, I'm just a fan of tech. Like I'm a fan of programming, programming languages there. I obviously have preferences. Uh, and, and for the record, my preference is no longer angular. Like I'm not like too hardcore into, uh, that framework. We'll get more into that later. I want, I want to talk like current day, modern tech stack choices, uh, at some point. Yeah, definitely. Um, but yeah, for the most part, I just really like this field. Um, and like pretty much I, there's no technology that I particularly hate, uh, except for maybe a lot of the, the big data stuff that that's kind of going around, but that's like a, a, also a huge conversation in itself. Yeah. And that stuff all it there, every single piece of that stack is like, it has quirks for sure. Uh, from from Python all the way to the Hadoops and everything. Yeah, so so I can I really dig Python for the most part. What but Hadoop? It seems like everything that's involved with Hadoop is just like somebody somebody kind of built this this mostly cool thing called Hadoop that can do like distributed processing. Okay, cool. It's it's written in the JVM, and I'm not like the biggest JVM fan. I'm not the biggest fan of of Java and Scala, um, but. Yeah, the JVM definitely burnt me out at a at a very young age. It does, well, it doesn't take much. It it takes one issue with dependencies and you're over it. No, dude, it was for me, it was like, yeah, for sure. The first time I ever dealt with Maven, I was like, this is awful. And I I didn't even have anything good to compare it to. So it wasn't like I was coming from this awesome ecosystem and was like, man, this is kind of painful. It was just like I just knew intuitively that this wasn't the thing. But it was for me, it was the first time that I had to deploy like a glass fist glass glass fish server to uh i don't i can't remember to even kind of what the how the infrastructure was but just dealing with some of the issues there and all the class references and everything it was just so nightmarish i had a uh i i was the maintenance guy on a project with my last company that was like super super old java like java enterprise on a web logic server and i you had to like build a war um artifact in order to deploy it and, and crap and i'm like this is awful this this can't be like the pinnacle did you uh have you ever heard of wicket i have not How, okay let me let me take a step back have you ever heard of swing and jwt uh yes is it jwt i think it is maybe it's gwt uh, I'm getting I'm getting my acronyms mixed up, but but yeah, basically it's like the the built-in sort of standard library way to make uh, desktop apps and and UI stuff with Java, and uh, Wicket was literally like, how do you take the people that have that skill set and allow them to kind of spit out web apps with the same code? Um, and it was just so horrifically awful. Actually, my first kind of like real job uh, as a as a software engineer, uh, full time, you know, not declared as an intern. Uh, that was kind of what they were doing for the for the front end. Luckily, I was not involved at all, but just looking at it, it was horrific. And that was where I started to get the idea that, man, these class names are going to be pretty gnarly. You know, <laughs> modal model, wicket panel Java, you know, seven hundred character file names. Yeah, definitely. Uh, so that's interesting that that's yet another kind of tackle at trying to have a a mobile application share the same code as your web application. Like so many things are trying to do that right now. And it's just not great. Like nothing's doing a, a particularly good job at it. Uh, so it's really interesting that I'm sure that's probably an old framework by now. Oh yeah, Wicket. Oh yeah. I think I think by the time that I was at a company that was using it, it was already a really questionable decision to be using it still. <laughs> yeah, it's probably, I think it was probably deprecated ancient. by now. That's half the crap that 
Actually, it's totally still kicking. I don't know how, but apparently there's people out there that are that are totally using that and making good money with it. Bummer. That's like like talking about people who are making desktop applications with like like uh, window forms still. Like, uh, I don't know if that's a good idea anymore. And like Ben had mentioned, this isn't even the first example of this in the Java ecosystem. Or I think this is the first. This probably predated what he was talking about, but he mentioned GWT which I think is is kind of the same thing, but like a more modern approach. And then they released GWT2, which was that re-implemented with Dart, which is, that's something that they love to do is just take something and rewrite it in Dart. Or <laughs> take something and slap a two on it when it's totally not related. Yeah, yep. Really quick, I want to take a step back because there's a couple of things I, I don't want to forget that you were talking about. Um, I need to start taking some notes here. Um, so did you want to plug that that podcast that you mentioned? Yeah, totally. Uh, so if you are a fan of Japanese role-playing games or games in general, uh, because we do kind of just talk about games in general, mostly RPGs, uh, check out the RPG After Years podcast. You can find it on iTunes uh, and probably some other stuff. I don't really listen to my own podcast, but it's out there. Dude, that's great. I'm actually, I've, I've kind of been obsessed listening to that that first episode not because like i i need the content or anything or i'm like listening for that but just uh, you know i'm listening to the audio quality and everything and i've actually like i've got a, a set of notes about the legitimate quality differences between all the services of course i upload it through uh through anchor and so they kind of deal with the distribution side of it for me but I, i've listened to it like nine times now it's it's miserable i hate myself <laughs> <laughs> we also live stream to youtube so we just use zoom uh, we use Zoom to record the audio and the video, and then um, yeah, we um, we use Anchor as well. Night and does that does that work well for you? For as far as like audio and video quality, does it just kind of fall in line, or do you guys ever have any issues? Uh, I don't. We really don't have any issues. No. So we uh, our we we kind of have a lot of cuts for you know intro music, outro music. Um, we we even have a, a jingle for the news. And there's a one of the original um, creators of the podcast. He's from England, and he he's not able to be on the podcast regularly anymore. So we have a specific uh, a specific um, uh, what's it called section uh, um, section of the podcast called Bill's Tea Time, where we have like a little intro that's like like super British sounding, and uh, so we we have to like use uh i think we use audacity most of the time to kind of splice everything around fit everything in and then upload it to um to audible throw in some ads do you mean anchor anchor yeah anchor audible yeah so yeah definitely if you guys play games check out his podcast i feel like i am kind of obligated to throw a snipe at you for just like how fucking nerdy that is not that I, <laughs> not that i fault you like i'm totally into it and i will check that shit out but um i want to go back to what you had said before so you were talking about how you were involved in this religious group and you uh, you kind of decided to make a switch. And uh, and feel free to kind of cut me off here if you don't want to talk about this anymore. But I'm curious because you said, you know, within a couple of weeks you had gotten a job and moved on. Um, I'm curious, was that your first job in software? Did you have any experience with software stuff before that? I, I kind of want to talk about like how you ramped up into software, especially transitioning from, from what you talked about before. Yeah, definitely. Um, so to kind of talk about my career. I'll probably start a little bit earlier than that. Uh, so, so first of all, I've kind of been into computers, uh, you know, 
like most people my age, uh, my entire life, like doing emulators, like uh, like any kind of random nerdy stuff that that somebody can do with a computer, but without you know actual technical expertise. I'm assuming it started with games. Oh yeah, yep. Uh, so it kind of started with being growing up super poor, not being able to afford games, but then downloading ROMs and emulating on a like a super old Windows XP computer on running a like dial up internet, downloading ROMs and running emulators because we just couldn't afford actual games. You'll laugh at me. Um, I, I, I started having like honestly, I don't know my, how my mom did it, man. Um, looking back on it. Like, I'm just so grateful for, even though I could definitely say I grew up really poor and it wasn't like the best circumstances, I don't know how she managed to keep me sane as well as she did. Like, she did a fucking bang up job. And so somehow I would have consoles like pretty regularly, which was kind of insane. Um, But you'll laugh. I didn't actually know emulators even existed as a construct until I was like 21. (laughs) I did laugh. Yeah. The, uh. I think so. My my grandparents tried really, really hard to to do what they could in in terms of uh, gaming consoles. They they did end up getting me uh, the a PlayStation Three, probably like maybe six months after it came out. But they had to get it through Rent One, and probably ended up paying a thousand bucks on that over the course of like four years. Yeah, those kind of companies are fucking scumbags. Absolutely, but it was the best they could do because they didn't have like a a, a cash reserve because they were pretty. Um, we we were on welfare, and even though they were both working, they weren't able to really afford a whole lot, which um, in itself is messed up. I really liked how you and, and Ben kind of were talking about that topic. Um, so yeah, I, I don't know. I can't even remember how I learned about emulators. I just remember having a Windows XP computer and dial-up and downloading ROMs. I think I most likely came across it on some forum or something like that. Yeah, that that makes sense for the time period we're probably talking about here. How old are you now? Uh, I'm 25. Okay, cool. You're actually younger than me. Damn. Um, so fast forwarding a little bit, you start with emulators, and at what point did code pop its its rear its ugly head up into your life? So I uh, towards the end of my senior year, um, I kind of started peeking around. There there was a, a computer teacher um, named Mr. Klein who he was a part-time teacher and all the rumors said that somehow he made it big in, in software development and made a butt ton of money retired and now just teaches about computers and coding uh, to high schoolers just for fun. Like he doesn't get paid a whole lot. He just does it as something to do. And so that, that initially piqued my interest. Like, Oh God, he made a whole lot of money and now he doesn't, <laughs> now he doesn't have to do anything. What's this, this software stuff. Um, so I kind of got involved in like Python a little bit then, like, you know, games with Python. I didn't really do anything web-wise. Uh, it was really, really basic stuff. Uh, and then once I graduated, um, because of like the pressure from the religion that that me and my partner were involved in, we got married right out of high school. Um, and so with that, like right out of high school, I got married. I, I started going taking online classes for accounting while working full-time uh, and, you know, soft, uh, everything computer-wise kind of went to the wayside. Uh, after 
after about six months of doing like accounting school work, I, I was over it. I was like, this is garbage. This is, I'm, I'm done with it. Um, so I stopped, I dropped out of college and started working at a Walmart distribution center. Um, did that for about a year and a half, almost two years. Uh, and then that was so miserable. That was absolutely terrible. And, um, whenever I found out that my partner was pregnant, I, I was still a teenager whenever I found out she was pregnant. Um, so 19, I kind of had like a, you know, early life crisis and like just walked out of the factory and quit and was jobless for a little bit. Um, kind of doing a little bit of, of work at a furniture store and I was helping around like a CrossFit gym where I made a little bit of money. Um, but that, that gave me the chance to like reevaluate, like, what do I want to do? Like what, what is it that interests me, but also is going to provide a good career path? Um, and so that led me back to computer science and, and stuff with computers. Um, so I started classes again and through Grantham University. I initially started with computer networking, and like just re really basic IT administrative uh, degree path. And I got a job as a software specialist that kind of... Uh, like dual rolled in QA uh, for a software company called Patterson Companies. And then... And this was... How, how old were you at this point? Um, I was 20 at this point. So... Damn, so you moved quick. Yep. I... Yeah, I've been fortunate enough to wiggle my way into uh, to the places that I want to be. Um, so tw at 20, I got the job as a software specialist where I had to do like IT support and software support, but also did a lot of, of QA stuff. Um, and we did a lot of like, like scripting in Python to like for really basic repetitive tasks. Uh, and from there, well, I should say I did that. Not a whole lot of other people did that because it was most people were just there for the nine to five. Um, so while I was working through school uh, and this support kind of QA job, I eventually moved into like an automation engineer job. Um, so I was writing uh, automation code for desktop applications um, and playing like a minor, like somewhat of a minor role uh, in the actual development teams because that's where I was interested in. I was not interested in actual automation, but it was the job that got me into writing code full time. Um, and then from there, whenever I moved to Michigan, um, I that's whenever I got the actual uh, like software development job. Uh, but uh, I should say, like while I was doing that, the automation stuff, that's whenever I started doing side work as well. Uh, um, so I should say technically my first gig as a uh, software software developer was kind of like a, a part-time internship for um, the LLC that made a website called Hybrid Performance Method. Um, and so I was kind of doing technically like an intern for them for a little bit. And then just once I was actually getting paid regular, um, like what not an intern makes per hour by them through like uh, contracts and stuff. Uh, I just kind of continued that relationship up until like maybe, you know, a month ago. I'm going to say something that I'm probably going to have to cut. Uh, and I'm curious, I'm curious to take on this, how, how you feel about it and whether or not you think it's sort of like a dangerous thing to put out there at this point in my career. Um, so I actually, technically, I really don't have a degree. So I went to, uh, 
I, I know that's I know that's sketchy, right? I'm not sure how you feel about that. I don't think it's sketchy at all. On my resume, it totally says that I do, and like oh, I'm not. Okay, that's a little sketchy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but but it's not it's not quite that clear cut. It's not literally like you know I don't, and I'm saying I do. So the way here's how it went down. I was in college. I was there for four years in a like a summer semester, and I took every single course. I was a computer science major, and I got all the way to to the end, and I passed every single computer science class that there was to pass. Um, and the only course remaining stopping me from getting my degree, I had like 121 out of 120 necessary credit hours. And so I, um, the only class I had left was a gen ed. It was earth science. And at the time I was just going to take it over the summer or something. And, um, my, my mother was not doing very well. Her health had declined really sharply. She was just kind of on welfare. She was living in the North side of Jacksonville, which is like kind of an awful place. and. So I moved in with her, and at the same time, my grandmother, who also lived with her and was on disability, or I'm sorry, not disability, she was on um, Social Security. My mother was on disability. Um, she had been diagnosed with lung cancer. And so I was you know, kind of taking her back and forth uh, to her doctor's appointments, and eventually it got to the point where I had to like carry her in and out of the bathroom because she was just like not able to move around at all anymore. And at the same time, my mom's health declined like crazy sharply. She had a bowel obstruction that developed into like a whole issue and she had to have an emergency surgery. And that, that went so downhill so quickly that within like a month she was in a coma. And, uh, at the same, like while she was in a coma, my grandmother passed away and, uh, I had, I'd been working this job as a software engineer with this guy that was just lording over me. And I was working like 65 hours a week while in school full time, wrapping up that last semester before the summer I would have taken the last course. And uh, it just like, it overwhelmed me so much to the point where I just like quit my job, kind of like you did with the factory. I just cold turkey quit and I didn't find another job for a month. And I took like a $20,000 pay cut roughly when I got the new job. And uh, so it was just like rough times and I couldn't afford to keep my mother's house afloat with uh without her being you know around and helping and so um i ended up moving in with my sister and had to deal with my mom's house and everything and just it was kind of fucking it was just a really wild time and so at that point i started i started working for semantic bits and the goal was like you know just over the summer i'm gonna go take this class online or whatever but it ended up being a lot more difficult than that i would have had to go to the school and it was three times a week for 50 minutes and uh it was just a ridiculous drive it was like 50 minutes one way so it would have been like nine hours of my week every week for four months for earth science <laughs> um and i just i just didn't have the energy with like, like all high the other school class stuff. yeah right like with all the other stuff weighing on me at the time i just did not have it in me to go do that yeah so um so it's I, a kind of a gray area like i like there's there's no you cannot have a degree more than I have a degree in spirit, but I don't have a degree. Yeah, I, so I'm totally with you, and I would probably be doing the exact same thing that you're doing. Um, but I, I honestly hate the modern education system, the, especially private education system, um, or for-profit, I should say. It, so it, it sucks. I, I have an associate's degree in computer science, and I, I did it pretty much entirely uh, online while I was working full-time and had a kid. 
uh, and I totally just bullcrapped my way through it. I can't really tell you much of anything that I actually learned from those classes. Uh, everything that I learned in the programming classes, I had already known from actual work experience. Uh, and then my, the classes like my physics class, I, I don't remember anything about the physics class. And I'm pretty sure I barely passed it because I would do like the minimum that I could do because I, you know, I was working full time. I, I don't have time to study, you know, s several hours a day to actually understand physics while I was. Dude, I'm not going to lie. I'm just going to, I'm going to out my, since I'm outing myself here, I'm just going to go fucking hardcore. Like if, if something comes of it, I'm just going to fucking like, I'll just take the podcast down and ghost for like three months and then come out of my shell. <laughs> come with a different like name, man. Yeah, it's fine. I'll just change my name legally. It's cool. So I'm going to just be honest here. I totally cheated my ass off through physics too. Like calculus physics two was just, it's gotta be one of the most intense courses I've ever taken. It's just, it was so ridiculous and it, it's completely and utterly orthogonal to the entire almost decade now of work that I've done since since starting as a software engineer. Totally. And, and so, so I, I listened to a lot of Neil deGrasse Tyson. Um, and like, I, I really enjoy hearing these like weird, uh, really intelligent people talk. Um, like I like Elon Musk is kind of like a, a kind of a douchebag in a lot of ways, but like whenever he sits down and like just talks about things, it's interesting to me. But one thing that Neil deGrasse Tyson s says often is how, the school systems do not teach people how to solve problems. They teach people how to answer specific questions. Like if instead of saying like, is the answer A, B, and C, you just need to say like, here is the question, go out and find the answer. Like learn for yourself. For sure. I, I don't want to like put a blanket statement here because I, I've been known to do that. Um, but I will say that my experience was with in college and, and I think it was really obvious to everybody. And when I go back and talk to people that were taking the courses with me, it's the same thing now. Um, or they, they agree with me. And that, and the idea is that the people that were teaching us for one, they just like, they really were not passionate about it at all. Uh, it, it like, I didn't have one professor. Like if I was teaching a course, <laughs> Okay. And like I walked in and it's like a computer science one course. Like I would start with the most dramatic, like fucking light show philosophical conversation that these people have ever witnessed. Like it would, I would try and get them as hype as in insanely possible about software and how it impacts the world. And, and that's where I would start. Like what is programming? What is software? I would start with things like Brett Victor's talk on the fact that like humans as a species have no idea how to answer those questions really but we have our preconceived notions about them. And I would start from that point. I would put them all on a level playing field, teach them that they don't know anything. And then we would just kind of explore together. But most professors, you sit down and they're just like, all right, well, this is a variable. And it's like, okay. Open your textbook you know. to page 304. Yeah. Right. Read um, paragraphs so one and two and answer these multiple choice questions. Yeah. It's ridiculous. They have, they have no passion and I'm sure it's even worse online to be honest. It is. It absolutely is because you don't, whenever you take classes online, you don't, you don't read paragraphs one and two. You go and look at the questions and find it, what you need just to answer that question. For sure. Yeah. Like I, I've always said this, I, and this is why I prefer that my lead or tech leader, whoever's like working above me kind of has like a militaristic attitude almost because I don't, 
I respond really well to confrontation, like completely and totally well to confrontation. I also take responsibility really well, I think. Um, and I'm also an optimizer and I'm kind of lazy. So like, I will just, I will always do the absolute bare minimum possible work. Not because I like, I'm consciously trying to do that. It's just who I am. And I have little things that I do to combat that. Um, ways that I kind of trick myself into being more productive on a day-to-day -day basis. It's been one of my biggest struggles as a, a remote worker um, over like the last four years now. But um, yeah, I've gotten really good at kind of gamifying my day into a way to get like an actual 10 hours of productive stuff done, um, which has been nice. But yeah, basically, I, I agree with you. Like if, if I was I in school, I always did the, the minimum amount possible. And if I was doing things online, it would just be even worse. Yeah, and I think I think the thing that sucks is that so many of these uh, courses are are filled with like uh, filled with classes that aren't relevant to what you're doing, and they're like if you if I don't believe in forcing somebody to take a class for a topic they are uninterested in because if you're uninterested in it you're not going to absorb it and it's 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 a waste of money. For sure. And honestly, I think I think context really matters. This is one of the things where it's kind of a gray area because um, nobody really knows what the fuck they're going to be doing with their lives, especially when they're starting college. But I mean, if you're going to do what we're doing, four years of a computer science degree are really not going to like they're not going to be the best thing for you. I think I think it's more about just getting hands on. Not to say that all the knowledge is not is, is like has no value or whatever. And I think it's on a person by person basis. But I mean, if your teachers have no passion and they really have no actual work history in the field, then the only thing that they have to show for their 35 years in programming is that they built like a crazy 10 by 10 tic-tac-toe game in C without a UI. Like it's okay. You know, what does this person really have to teach you other than their own opinions about a specific language or something? Yeah. And so this brings me back to a database design class I had taken for my associate's degree. And the the entire project was to just design a relational database and i i took this uh this project and said okay what would i do if this were like an actual project i was working on professionally and i did that and the professor came back to me and said this is really good but i'm looking for this and it was like some something that would that would not pass in a production environment and I'm like, why, how am I getting, how am I losing points? Why did I get a B on this whenever it is, it's not relevant? Like the actual answer to what you're giving me isn't relevant. Yeah, it's, it's pretty wild. And uh, there's, and it's, there's no mistake. So I had this, I had this class. It was, uh, it was mobile apps and game development or something. I can't really remember the exact title, but we, she was, doing something and she was teaching us how to make like a quick mobile game and she was using like an android sdk and she was using some library like i, I can't remember the library at this point but it was some sort of mobile game engine thing for for uh, android and so when it came time to import the library she didn't use dependency management none of that stuff she just like decompiled the jar and like copied the code over and i was like yeah, that works kind of, but it's also really, really strange. And it's like the least modern thing you could possibly do. And also there's tons of licensing issues with that. Like literally, if you just open the license that came with the, the download for the jar, like they specifically say, import this as a normal dependency, give us credit in some way. If you make a project with this, you, you can't just 
decompile their code. And the worst part is like when you decompile it, it comes out as kind of a bunch of garbage. It's like the variable names are really random and like the class references don't make sense. You can like totally look up the 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 data about a method or something, but like the names are X, Y, and Z rather than something meaningful. And so there's like, there's actually no upside to it. There really is no upside to it whatsoever. And so I, I would, I said this and she got really upset with me and she took it so personally that it, it definitely marred my experience in the class for the entire semester. Yeah, I think there are definitely a lot of issues in academics to the point, especially in the computer science realm, to the point to where I, I think that places like Udemy, Udacity, uh, Khan Academy, Coursera, I think they just do it better because they are they're specialized. Absolutely. Also, yeah. I, have you used Udacity at all? Udacity. I don't think so. I think they're the I've ones done with like nano everything. degrees. No, I think I've only done Udemy pretty much. Uh, so, so they have a free month out there. I invite you to give it a shot, but only be and actually take one that has like a lot of, that's relevant to actual code, because the the software that they have for like they have integrated uh, IDEs within like workspaces and uh, like VMs built into the browser. It's really cool. Like. Like it may, whenever I'm doing these Udacity uh, nano degree courses, I'm thinking like, why, why are we not doing actual coding like this? Like it's all integrated into the browser, like incredibly cool. And uh, yeah, I, I just thought you would uh, find it interesting. Yeah, for sure. Is there like a referral link that'll get you some sort of benefits or should I just sign up normally? Uh, I just sign up normally. I, uh, okay, cool. I may or may not use a new email every time I want to take a course and get a free month. Gotcha. Okay. Just something like hey.com or you just make an email by <laughs> hand. I have a lot of emails, man. Oh, true. Makes sense. Yeah. I think I've got like seven. Yeah. Uh, I, I think I've forgotten most of them at this point, but okay, cool. I don't want to, I don't want to get stuck on education because there's more interesting things that we, we can talk about here, especially, um, I, I want to talk about angular, uh, for anybody just catching in like, if this is your first time listening, um, which I mean, I don't know if anybody's actually listening anyways, but if this is your first time listening the last episode, I had an, an old boss of mine, Ben McMean on, and we took a little bit of our time shitting on Angular because we're both kind of like old men in spirit. Um, and I, well, he's actually an old man. <laughs> I've seen him. I, I, I love Ben though. He is. Uh, yeah. He's a fantastic dude. Yeah. Dude, he's like, he's just, what I love about Ben, uh, honestly, is just, he's that guy that will just call some shit out, you know? Like it, most of the time it's like you're on a call with some, you know, contractors or something and they're saying a bunch of dumb shit and everyone just kind of dances around and is like, okay, yeah, through like gritted teeth. But Ben will just sit there and be like, yeah, that's really fucking stupid. Um, I don't know if you've ever had the privilege of being on a call with, with the government, like with clients uh, with him, but it's, it's a sight to see. I haven't, I haven't been able to be on a call with him, but I've had to do some, some, very nerve wracking presentations to uh, some people in the federal government. Unfortunately, I don't think I'm quite to the to Ben level, but I try to do my best to to be like, hey, guys, this doesn't this isn't going to work. Yeah, there was there's a lot of that, too. Um, people that just have like really strong opinions about something uh, that they have like no business with day to day. Yep. Um, I remember one specific example from when I was working at Semantic Bits where there was somebody who was complaining. I think he eventually left the company because he was just really frustrated and he was the tech lead and he was kind of the go-between with the business, uh, with the client, I should say. 
and they just had some really strong opinions about, you know, this field needs to be stored in the database as a string. And he's like, why? It's a number. I can store it as a number and then send it to you as a string if you really feel that strongly about it. And they were like, no, it has to be stored as a string. Um, and I just found that so strange. Like, why of all the things that you could care about as the business? Like that, to me, that comes directly from not really understanding what's happening. Yeah. And unfortunately, like there's a reason the companies are being contracted to do this software. Like it's our job. But at the same time, there's a lot of things that I'm just like, okay, that's not, you want it this way, fine, whatever. Yeah, it definitely becomes more of a, um, like you have to pick your battles for yep. sure. Yep. And, and, and sometimes, luckily, sometimes so, they're worth and sometimes they're not. Yeah. One, one thing that I love recently, at least, um, the reputation that Semantic Bits has with CMS is really, really good. Uh, especially after the, the project my team was able to kind of bring back from the dead. It's kind of to the point to where they just believe us whenever we say something. Um, I feel Which like is good. And honestly, it's how it should be because Semantic Bits is like the company in that space, I think. Yeah. Uh, and in terms of federal contracting and these healthcare uh, softwares, Semantic Bits is like at the top of the game because we actually deliver stuff on time. Like it's such a small thing to actually do, but we we usually del deliver everything on time and on budget. So and that's like... A, less than 80% of, or more than 80% of projects are uh, yeah. um, over And that's budget. like their core principle. It's totally not even a thing where it's like a marketing campaign. Like that is, that's how they actually behave. That's how they live and breathe. Yep. I, I, I think it's really cool, especially since nobody trusts the government to actually go and spend the money. Like whenever, whenever people hear that their taxes are being raised, like, oh, great. What's, what are we going to waste it on now? So it, it's kind of cool to be a part of a company that, um, that is trying to alleviate that problem. Like, let's be on budget. Let's not waste more taxpayer money. For sure. But again, like, like I had said in my last podcast, all that really means is it gives the government more spending uh, for, the, uh, for the military at the end of the day, probably. Yeah. But yeah. like, they're not going to, it's not going to go back to taxpayers. That's just not how it works. Like if they save money somewhere, it's going to just be reappropriated. And maybe that will benefit people in some way. I think it's just like, it really depends uh, um, with the current administration and like how things are currently going, no. I mean, there are plenty of sure. people that uh, that that really want to be able to like, hey, let's let's do things good, let's budget well. But it's just, yeah, I don't think it's going to happen anytime soon. I mean, if you talk about the institutions that are actually helping people and actually like have an impact on individuals' lives in the country, they're already funded. There's there's nothing that you can save from any other part of the government that's going to like refund those because the the people at the top level are actively working to try and defund those programs or to eliminate them completely i can't remember the name of one but there's something recently where trump randomly said something about how he's going to completely get rid of this awesome program that would like bring foreign people in for college and um and, and something like that and that he was going to deport all these people who had this sort of like specific right to be in the country and uh, there was like facts being thrown. It's like, you cannot do that. That's that's tens of thousands of people. And 80% of them have children who were born in the country. You cannot just deport these people. Yeah. Um, luckily, he, luckily, he totally was talking out his ass on whatever that was. But Well, that's that's every time. I mean, he's trying to get rid of Obamacare and DACA and everything. And it's not going to, I don't think it's going to end up flying. Which is which is good. But before before I, I we missed the point, um, uh, let's Angular, talk about Angular. Angular. Yeah. <laughs> 
So what do you think about Angular? Give me give me the full download on your brain. Yeah, so so uh, this kind of stems from like you had said what what you and Ben were talking about, especially with uh, with the framework uh, kind of architecture of Angular and Nest.js and how they're very similar. Uh, and you both agreed that you prefer that kind of architecture more on the back end than the front end. So I'm going to try to flip that and, and and try to convince you on why I think it should be flipped. Um, so first off, I, I do like Angular. Uh, I I love observables. I love the uh, I love streams. Um, just the I feel good whenever I write a really awesome observable. Uh, I don't know what it is about it. It's just you know uh, I guess my my elitist uh, white coder attitude. Uh-huh. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I overall, I like the simplicity of Angular. Like I can go in and because so much, so many decisions are made for you, I can spin up like an Angular project and have a full, I, like I, I did an entire prototype of an entire uh, like application for a buddy in one weekend using Angular and Firebase. And it was like fully functional. It did what we needed it to do. And it didn't take that long. Um, really quick, I on that point, I think one of one of my problems, it's not that it solves problems for you or that it's opinionated. I, I like that about a framework, honestly. Um, my, my issue with it is that it's probably Angular 2 through 96 or whatever they're up to now. 703. It, yeah, something. I think it's 9 now. Um, I think but 10, the point is, 10's coming out. Yeah, it's probably on the horizon. It's always the next version. But whatever they're calling it nowadays, um, that was probably like my 11th web framework coming from a background of like PHP stuff and getting really hardcore into the uh, the jQuery game and then moving to things like Backbone.js and doing a little bit of work in Ember. Even I even had a job where I was I was maintaining and progressing the development of a custom framework written in Dart. It was an MVC uh, framework in dart that was this company was using custom for their for their front-end applications pretty and cool yes, though it, it was terrible uh, yeah it was a <laughs> cool experience but it was awful and that's why people go the open source route which makes a lot of sense so my point is i agree it's not a bad thing that it solves problems for you i like that my problem is that it it does them differently in ways that are strange when coming from the same type type of understanding of a different system if yeah. that makes sense. Yeah, totally. So so my intro into web development was kind of uh the first app I had ever worked on was a Python like a Flask application where all of the JavaScript code was AngularJS. Um from and, and not like SPA AngularJS, like using AngularJS as if it were just vanilla JavaScript. Um and so then, like a heavy, heavy jQuery almost. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and then more applications I've worked on, um, ASP.NET, like really vanilla MVC with just jQuery. Uh, I, I've worked in an actual Angular JS SPA. And then from there, it kind of just transitioned to Angular. So I haven't had, I haven't really had to, um, you know, I haven't, I haven't used Backbone in a production setting or like Ember or any, any of those other um, frameworks, which I have had to use a lot of different server side stuff. But it's usually pretty common that I'm I've been able to stay in the the big uh, names in terms of front ends. But but like I said, what I like about Angular is that at least for me, 
um, because I've used it so much, I'm able to just rapidly spit stuff out. And which I think is, I think that is awesome. And I think that is the, I think that's the value of any sort of structured opinionated system. Um, I just think that there are, there are things that totally accomplish that and also are like really fun to use. They do. Honestly, I, I still think that they're kind of, I, I don't think anything's kind of doing it right yet, to be honest with you. Yeah. So one thing that I really like about Angular and its dependency dependency injection and kind of its its service la- like service trees and um, its modularization. Uh, and, and before I say all this, I do want to point out that I I think most front end frame- frameworks are very heavy, um, especially whenever you look at something like Svelte. That's all compile time. Um, so you don't have to build in all of the, the Svelte libraries. So it just compiles the, the really beautiful syntax you can make into just plain old JavaScript, uh, without adding in all those dependencies. And I, uh, I've actually got some really strong opinions about, uh, compilers as a framework. And th- these were thoughts that had come about even before, uh, Svelte was a thing or before I realized that people were actually out there doing this actually before I really even realized what it was that my brain was proposing to me. Yeah, totally. And, and that is something I want to touch on after um, after I, I play this hand. So one thing that has always plagued people uh, with the front end, is, especially with uh, single page applications, is how do we keep track of data from page to page? And React, of course, like you have state management stuff like going on nonstop. Um, and I, most of the time, I actually, probably all the time, I hate using re, uh, like Redux. Um, but one thing that I really love with Angular is the root level dependency injection. Every service that, that you provide to the root module, it is, it's a singleton. You, any component or component tree that accesses this uh, service it's the same one that the previous one used. If you store data on an observable within that service, every other component or every other page with every route change, no matter what you do, uh, you'll be able to access that same data. Um, And that is one reason why I love Angular's dependency injection. Because for it, sure. another another thing though, like they definitely stole the dependency injection thing from Java, which may have stolen it from somewhere else. I don't know. That's as far back as I go with with the experience of it. But that definitely kind of stemmed from this like enterprise Java singleton thing that they had going yeah. on. Yep, totally. And uh, in, in a second, I'm going to explain why I hate dependency injection on the back end now. Um, so so on top of so with dependency like that singleton mindset that you get with Angular, even with page page shifts you're able to create like kind of your own state uh, to keep track of state, uh, to, to have communication between components and between, uh, pages. And then modularization of course allows you to lazy load. Like if you want to, you don't want to, if you have a huge app, you don't want to load the whole thing. You can just lazy load it. And it's kind of the same, like react has its own lazy loading. And right now react has hooks and context API that, that are, that solve very similar problems to, how I like to use the dependency injection in Angular. This is this is a just a quick quick side tangent here. Um, this is kind of getting on touching at, at this thing that I've been thinking recently, ever since getting like understanding what was going on with Next.js and Next.js and and really using Sapper on a couple of projects. I feel like 
client applications are kind of full stack now. They totally are, especially if you use something like Firebase. Um, like <laughs> if you use Firebase or anything like like um, that's very uh, small backend, it it's pretty much all on the all on the client. Um, even if you even if you don't, what I mean is um, what I mean by that is. I feel like the client application itself, regardless of what backend you're using, is like it's moving towards full stack now. I think Firebase is an interesting example because, um, like you said, it's different. It's like got that minimal, so it's kind of got this like headless backend sort of feeling almost. And so you just it, they kind of integrate in an interesting way. Um, but even outside of that, if you have like an actual backend or an existing backend or an enterprise backend, like I said with mine, I'm I'm using Sapper on the front end which is full stack. Sapper is totally full stack. Like it has a client and it has a server and you can do hydration between them and all the routing happens on the server side. And yeah, I mean, I, that, it, that, that, that's kind of like what Meteor JS does as well. Oh dude, we can, I can talk about Meteor JS all day. I'm going to, I'm going to go out there and say it worst web framework that's ever existed. It does. <laughs> it is not great. I dude, used it's it. Actual, it is actual <laughs> garbage. Like I, uh, let me actually, I'm just going to go down this path real quick just cause I need to get it out. Um, so, I worked at a place that was doing a, a Meteor JS. Actually, I worked at a place and then I left them because they were terrible. And a couple of years later, they reached out to me and were like, hey, we need some contract work done. Like, are you available? And I was like, absolutely, yeah. So they brought me in and they had started this app. They had started this prototype and they were, they were literally two weeks into it, right? But they had made some big promises to some people that they were already in business with. And so it, they were like under a lot of pressure. They, had, I think maybe they had already accepted a check. I'm not sure, but they were like, they needed to get it done yesterday when I got there. And so I spent a couple of, I spent a couple of minutes with it and I was like, okay, this is, this is actually awful. And they were using uh, meteor JS, which at the time was already kind of on its down climb or decline um, uh, of not being really maintained anymore. And this was years ago. So long story short, it went really poorly. And I told them like day one, I told them, you guys should totally rewrite this using um, using like a Node.js Express server or something or something up in uh, Azure. You should definitely not be using Meteor.js. Like you need to have a headless client application or a, a PWA and you need to uh, redo the backend completely, which really wouldn't take more than a couple of days if you would just like let me heads down, work on it. And... They were just like, no, we can't. We can't possibly. We've already put too much into this. I'm like, you think that now, but you're going to really regret not choosing this path later. So I worked with them for like three months and I was like, this is awful. I can't deal with it. Uh, and there was a lot, like I said, there was a lot of pressure. So it wasn't necessarily the tech. It was the pressure. So I left and a couple of years later, they hit me up again and I actually really needed the money at the time. So I was like, yes, 100%, I will come do this for you. And when I got there, do you know what they wanted me to do? They, this had been two years. They were two years into the app and it was still like complete fucking mess. And they had lost features. It had become so painful to maintain that they had actually been actively removing features that I had already implemented years before um, because their backend like integration was just so complex and in badly done that they couldn't do it. They, they could only support like 200 active users on this, this whole platform. That's rough, man. I so I used Meteor JS um, for probably about six months. We were it was working on a, a private application we were building uh, at the last company I was at, and I just felt like every single time that I worked in it, I barely understood what was going on. 
Like yeah, what, what it's, server? Like it had it some is really cool the most ideas. mysterious thing. Yeah, it is the it is the mystery framework. Like you're you're not. I feel like you're not supposed to know. It's a game. It's it's a game of like what can you just kind of tap around on the keyboard and just get some stuff to work with. Yeah, totally. Like I really love the fact that if if you had a, a uh, like hooked up to MongoDB, like like it was all just streaming and you you know automatically see it update. Like that was pretty cool. That was that was attractive. But then whenever you'd actually code it, you'd be like, okay, is this client server? Uh, yeah, what are we doing here? Long. What's this mean? Uh, yeah, that, that was always interesting. Um, so yeah, off, off of the Meteor.js tangent, what I was getting at is that, um, you know, so I've got, I've got two applications now. One is a server-side application running on Node with Nest.js, which hopefully you'll convince me to abandon. And on the front end, it's also a full-stack application. So it's a client and server and, you know, it's just, it's really weird to like, I'm used to having this sort of detached uh, headless client, but having that now over the last year for me sort of seep its way into being another full stack application. It's kind of, it's kind of strange. Yeah. I, I have only looked at Zapier like very briefly. Like I, th I think at some point you probably posted about it in Slack and I spent like, like maybe a couple hours pulling down like, uh, or like doing a, uh, a, a, like a new app for it and, and just playing around with it. Um, but I have played around with Svelte a little bit more and I, I dig Svelte. Oh man. I love Svelte. Hate the name. Absolutely. Totally. Completely. 100% hate the name, but I love <laughs> the framework. I dig the name, man. I don't know why it just, for some reason, it's just, it's like, I, the, the continents just don't work for me. The, the, that part, it's just, oh, man, I don't want I don't want to say it. Yeah. Yeah. I can dig that. So where was I about the Angular? About yeah, Angular. Angular. Uh, so when where did I stop at? So oh yeah, lazy loading, all that's good. Um, state management, I feel like you can do that really well. I love the um, like for the most part, I I like Angular change detection. I, I think you can you really have to know how to do it if you're going to do it. Um, I I feel like modern react probably handles change detection and view updates better than angular uh, i am kind of more in the react camp nowadays than i am in the angular camp uh, especially hey, if you really quick that's what that's one of the things that's that i have a problem with for angular is that like it is great i'm not saying it's not great and i'm not saying there aren't people and we know people like you're like this people like uh, at semantic bits are like this and there are people that can just make this thing do their dance like they can make it do anything that they want they can make really solid really reliable applications really quickly but that requires being a specialist and for me it's one of those things where you know you're moving between jobs every couple of years you're learning this technology like if it's not the thing you're working with at work full-time how are you supposed to like are you supposed to really spend all of your free time like specializing in that thing for fun on the on the side um like that is an option, but it's just not for everybody. And so if you're that person who's not using it full time, um, it's, I feel it's, a, it's just a lot better to choose something else that can, that is more intuitive up front. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I don't disagree. Uh, so I think one thing that helps me, cause I, I, I am very confident, uh, and, um, I think confidence probably the best word. I'm very confident in my ability to like switch to any tech stack or any framework. Uh, because for the most part, like every framework are is trying to solve the same problems in kind of similar ways, uh, like change detection, um, how it's how like shadow DOM uh, or um, uh, virtual DOM or whatever you want to call it. 
Um, and so, honestly, I think that's that's probably the most important skill of any software engineer these days, right? Is just being adaptable, being able to switch, um, being someone that can be a team player, which means if you join a team where they're all using React, but you happen to hate React, it's like you need to suck it up and like get on board with this team. You know what I mean? Like that yeah. is your whole job is to not be that fucking guy. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Um, but for but, some reason, people still want to be that guy. I, I do not understand it. They totally do. I, I, I'm always a glass half full kind of guy. Um, but yeah, I, I'm kind of more on the, the camp of React, is especially when it's like React and Context API or Hook API or like React and MobX. Uh, I'm not a huge Redux fan. I think there's just way too much boilerplate code. And I, I've been burnt by having to debug uh, huge re Redux stores. Um, but I guess I, I'll move on to my opinions about Nest. Uh, so yeah, hit uh, me, dude. I'm, uh, I'm honestly, I'm ready for like a really great hot take here. Again, I, I give the disclaimer that I think Nest is pretty dang cool. Like it feels, so I came, I, I spent a lot of time in the .NET world and it feels quite a bit like .NET. Like I, I love the decorators. Uh, for the most part, I really love the experience uh, however, I, I am no longer sold on dependency injection on the back end or crazy modularization and, and uh, IOC and stuff like that on the back end. Uh, I, I, so you have to kind of look so back. Is, is it because of like the shift to serverless or like what, what is your reasoning here? I won't, uh, I won't even say it's, it's not the, the shift to serverless. Uh, it's the the shift to scaling out instead of up. So the the old way of doing things with uh, with these backends, the reason why dependency injection existed was to to make things easier on monolith style servers. You had these huge servers that had to be able to handle uh, like millions of requests for all of these older websites. Uh, that is not going to exist in today's ecosystem. Even if you're not using serverless, if you're not using like ECS Fargate on AWS, if you're just using EC2 nodes, uh, it is very, uh, it, it is technically best practices, which I, I hate the term best practices because it usually best practices means that somebody decided this is the good way and now people just do it that way. Um, but Best yeah, practice. that's a, that's another that's something I touched on in in the last episode as well, which where it's like on one hand you've got this like this culture of developers that are like we're all really great, and then on the other hand they're all sort of like making the same decision or like people in the software world they bandwagon ultra hard. I feel and yeah, I'm guilty do. of it too. I'm totally yep. guilty of it at times in the past. Yeah, I'm with you because uh, sometimes it's just easier to like let's just solve this problem this other way. Did it? I don't want to think of a new way to do it. But uh, right. But yeah, for for most of these servers, you're gonna have like some basic some normal size server. And if you start getting a buttload of requests, you're going to have a load balancer spin up another server and it's going to redirect some of those requests to the other server. So, so you no longer really have the need to have this huge server that's handling all the requests. Right. Uh, and I think a lot of places they, they go the microservice route and they start actually like as they get bigger and bigger, they start really uh, putting like they, they do like zone dependent region dependent things too. So they're deploying like multiple places in the world. Yeah, absolutely. And so with the with that kind of distributed these distributed APIs that you have, whether you're server serverless or not, dependency injection no longer matters. You don't you don't need singletons, you don't need um 
that that inversion that you get where you are um like no longer having to instantiate new um new services every single time new instances of a service um so that that is one reason why i hate dependency injection i think it also introduces vastly unneeded complexity i feel like the only reason it exists nowadays is because that's how people are used to building backends touche honestly it's weird because that is exactly how i'm not used to building backends like i got away from that really early in my career and i feel like i've gone full circle where i was like that is definitely not the thing and then i went through like the the ultra raw express node server phase and this is back in like 2012 when I didn't know what coding was. And I was like, yeah, I'm going to use this thing called Node.js to do JavaScript on the server. And people were like, that's really dumb. You shouldn't do that. Um, and then I built a, a career out of it, of course. Yeah, that's, so I, I cannot stand the people that hate Node. I love Node. I think, that, I think that camp's a lot smaller these days. I think it's just the people that haven't used it in production that have a bad opinion of it. Yeah, right. Maybe not for the most part. Maybe there's a bunch of ascended you know code lords out there that are like no but it does this thing well i mean if you if you have a node api that you're running on like some huge server that's taking up all the requests that's going in yeah you're gonna have issues that's not um uh, like nodes not particularly good at, at handling that that huge of a load but for distributed uh processing or distributed apis or serverless like it's really freaking good um maybe I, even the best maybe not I don't know. I don't, I don't know. A, stuff like, <laughs> there, there, here's, here's what I envision. We'll, we'll get to this later, but I, I envision WebAssembly being a really big deal shortly. Yeah, I'm with you on that. I'm a... Uh, or something like it. Yeah, totally. Um, but yeah, with, with you saying that, that like vanilla Express app, like that's kind of in the camp that I'm in. Uh, I really like to be able to just write some JavaScript code like write a function that that does what I need it to do and just uh, you know throw it on a route. Like why I don't want to worry about having a class where the there is a service injected into the uh, constructor or like uh, add decorators in order to determine you know this is this needs to be injected into this. Like you just don't need that those containers uh, that are that are just living. Uh, it's also just a buttload of code. Like, why do you, why do you need to modularize uh, an API? Um, and so here's 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 the other thing too. Um, I what you're describing is exactly how I feel about the front end. So it's kind of wild uh, that we have these like inverse opinions. And and really more than anything, what it tells me is that it's not really appropriate anywhere anymore. Yeah. So so the argument on like. Um modularizing the front end is at least like whenever you do stuff on the front end, you, the browser is actively having to download files. So whenever you're, whenever you start modularizing, you can break up that, that initial payload, uh, and kind of make the user experience a little bit better. Whenever it comes to the API, like it's just HTTP requests there, like the, 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 um, the request is not having to go and, you know, like you're not downloading the entire API application. You're just hitting an endpoint uh, with be on a uh, on a port. Um, for sure, but I think I think we're definitely moving towards the same thing for the front end because I mean, if you think about it, you've got things like Svelte now, which are like really and they're just fantastic at that idea of, of minimalizing the bundle size. 
you've even got something like Sapper where it will legitimately hydrate from the server when on, on command, uh, just like the code splitting or something in Angular. So it's, it's got built-in tree shaking by the fact that it's it's using Svelte, it's using this compilation technique. And then you've got um, you've got this this idea of like sort of hydrating from the server on command, um, which is is really fantastic. And I think if you add in the fact that technology hardware is just going to get better and better, like the same type of web apps are going to just run better on on new devices as time goes on. Um, and, and you include something like WebAssembly, which again we'll get to in a minute. Um, I think we're definitely looking at a future where things are like just getting more and more simple. And honestly, probably the death of the framework, maybe. Yeah, so I also think that people are probably putting too much into their front-end applications. Like if you're, uh, it, truth be told, if you are running into uh, bundle size issues, like maybe you need to have a like micro front ends. Uh, like, like you you can um, you can create micro front ends and, and just handle all of the the routing with whatever your uh, you know, domain um, services to where you don't have to uh, have like these crazy, you don't have to solve these crazy problems of X, Y, and Z having to uh, do A, B, and C. Like it, you could have like, uh, you know, save a token to local storage that can just flip between apps. Um, I've I've seen really good success with that pattern as well. I'm I'm not like totally convinced that it it's the way forward. But I do think there's just a, like so much being thrown into these client applications that people are having to download and run. Really quick, I, I want a tangent about that stuff. Um, so I think and this is totally potentially a hot take. I don't know. But here's what, here's what I'm feeling intuitively. I think over the next five years, first of all, I think TypeScript is amazing. And I think we definitely need types in JavaScript. So whether or not we're using TypeScript or... JavaScript just gets typed at some point. I think that's definitely the way to do it. And even if it's not JavaScript, what I love about JavaScript is that you can use both. You can use it on both the client and the server. And I think having one language to kind of rule them all, while not everybody's cup of tea, is, I think, fantastic. So whether or not that means that at some point you're writing your servers in Rust and you're compiling your server, your client Rust code via WebAssembly and doing something like that, um, I think having one code base across the stack is like, a really big deal and I don't think anybody should do anything else but that especially like in a business setting um I foresee the death of the framework here soon or at least the framework as we think of it um I do think things like I think observables are certainly the way and the only reason that I struggle with them in angular is because I just haven't devoted that much time especially professionally to that realm yeah I so I I think observables or just the the reactive programming paradigm is super powerful because it's kind of so everybody loves iterators and it's kind of like the opposite of an iterator. Like if you if you whenever you have an iterator, you you tell it when to move on. Uh, but whenever you have observables, you have this subject, uh, and then this subject has a list of everybody of all the subscribers to it. And so whenever it changes, it just goes, hey, you, I changed, I changed, I changed, I changed, as opposed to um, the subscribers telling it to change. Um, I think it's just a, a really neat pattern that I've, I don't know, I, I've had a really good experience with it. Yeah, for sure. And I think also the compiler thing is going to catch on really, really hard. And I think that specifically because 
you know, we as an industry, we're constantly building these um, these abstractions and getting further and further away from the actual nitty gritty. And I think if you think about what uh, what a DSL is, what a domain specific language is or, or what an application is, an application is something that does something. Uh, but it's not just ethereal. It comes from like a, a need for it. So it's it's either, you know, it's some individual's idea of how this thing should function and what its purpose is or a business organization's uh, or some other conglomerate's uh, ideas about how this thing should should function and what its purpose is. And if you think about a DSL, a DSL is really just a way to express ideas. And a DSL is really just state. It's the state of those ideas at any one point in time. Not the DSL itself, but like the implementation with the DSL. It really just describes how something should work. And whether or not that's code that you're writing on command in order to make new views and stuff, or if it's something that you're writing as like a something some input to a compiler like svelte but i think in a couple of years we'll see since a dsl is just state and we can describe state with ui we're probably going to move more towards something where we've got like an autocad for software sort of thing where we just like are configuring applications with a ui that kind of builds out this state and then that state can then be just compiled directly into an application yeah i'm with you and um I've done a couple stints like researching uh, like compiler theory and the more that I learn about it and the more that I do with uh, compiled languages, um, the, the least, the less impressed I am with, uh, with interpreted languages. Yeah. And same with types. The more I mess with typed systems, the less and the less impressed I am with um, untyped systems. Yeah, Absolutely. So, so we've talked about Svelte and how like at, at compile time, it's able to just do everything that it's supposed to do in actual JavaScript. And you don't have to worry about including, uh, all these extra libraries in, in the final payload. Um, but I think that to be completely honest, Rust and modern C++ is kind of like the way to go for a lot of things. Uh, so I will preface that with saying that it, it doesn't necessarily always make sense to do that for like APIs because for the most part, any any framework that you build an API in, like it's gonna be fast enough. Like like humans, especially nowadays, like you said, if you're if you've got a million users or ten million users or a hundred million users, you're deploying to multiple regions in the in the world, and each of those has like a hub of microservices that are constantly being switched out and managed by some other thing like Kubernetes or some sort of load balancing system in AWS or something like that. Like you're not worried about the speed of an individual service call anymore yeah and i mean humans take in data in such a slow fashion like we we're slow humans we don't need things to be uh compile time programming fast um for the most part um the the exceptions there of course are in systems engineering and embedded programming like you need that crap to be immediate um, for but, sure and honestly i would love to get into that stuff but that's another thing like where i just feel like that is that's kind of a hard gap to bridge like bridging into the hardware world i i don't know if it's impossible but it certainly feels relatively insurmountable hey folks just wanted to take a quick break to talk to you about our sponsor our sponsor for the day is no one so uh, we don't actually have any sponsors yet so i'm going to go ahead and chill out for a company that i really love uh, i have no affiliation with them whatsoever they are not sponsoring me they don't know that I'm doing this, so keep that in mind. Uh, and the company I want to talk about is Sketchfab. You can check them out on sketchfab.com. Sketchfab is empowering a new era of creativity by making it easy for anyone to publish and find 3D content online. 
With a community of millions of creators who have published millions of models, they are currently the largest platform for immersive and interactive 3D content. Additionally, their online store lets buyers and sellers transact 3D models with confidence using their real-time viewer and model inspector. Their technology is integrated with every major 3D creation tool and publishing platform, and is compatible across every browser, operating system, desktop, and mobile. They also support VR and AR on compatible hardware. Their robust API lets developers support direct uploading and downloading of 3D models and configure their embeddable 3D viewer as needed. If you are a content creator in any way, maybe a 3D, uh, 3D artist, definitely check out Sketchfab, make yourself some money. Uh, if you are someone that's working on games or any sort of mobile application where you want to have interactive 3D content, definitely check out Sketchfab. And uh, if you're interested in AR or VR or you're a programmer and you're making a web app that is, uh, you know, marketing towards some sort of interactive 3D platform, definitely give them a look. And with that, please enjoy the music and we'll get right back to the podcast. For sure. And honestly, I would love to get into that stuff, but that's another thing like where I just feel like that is, that's kind of a hard gap to bridge, like bridging into the hardware world. I, I don't know if it's impossible, but it certainly feels relatively insurmountable as a task. I'll tell you now it's not. I, that's exactly the area that I've been more interested in these, these, this past month or so. And it's surprisingly not that difficult. I mean, um, I think the cost is is one of the real issues. Like the cost. Oh of the yeah, amount of time. yeah. You gotta go. Like, you have to. I mean, really, if you want to be really good at it, I feel like you have to learn electrical engineering more than likely, and you know, you really have to like get into the idea of like chipsets and stuff, and you definitely have to focus on a compiled language of some kind. So, I mean, if you haven't done that, or like assembly optimizations or something, like all of that's going to be new to you. Plus, it's like you know, I want to, I want to start by working on this thing or this drone. It's like, okay, let me. Let me drop $500 to start this hobby that yeah, is exactly. going to take me 4,000 hours of study to even understand the basics of. Right. So so I, I'm pretty close to, to going in and buying like a couple Arduinos to, to try and build some stuff. And um, 
I mainly, Dude, honestly, I, I challenge you to do it. I will. Uh, we should brainstorm some stuff and challenge each other because I'll totally participate in that with you. Maybe we can make like a web series out of it or something. Yeah, and it's really interesting. So, and SpaceX is actually what got me interested in it because I'm like, like whenever, uh, whenever SpaceX was like, uh, like booming there for a little bit, I was like, you know, like I'm really interested, like, like the software that they have. They're they're building rockets. Like, I, I wonder, like that's revolutionary. That's awesome. And uh, so I just did a little bit of research around it. I'm like, this is really cool, but I, it sounds very complicated. How do you even get into that? And it kind of led me down this path of like, uh, like learning about microcontrollers. And um, you, you have to be a lot more cognizant of how memory is handled. Um, and so I think one thing with interpreted programming languages that has probably hurt the industry is that you don't have to actually understand what's happening with a lot of interpreted uh, interpreted programming languages uh, like Java, Python, .NET. Like they they you can pretty much just do whatever the heck you want, and the language is either going to handle uh, like heap and stack memory for you, or the garbage collector is going to come and clean up all your mess. On that uh, note, on that note, that is exactly why I don't like C++ because while you have to know what you're doing, you don't really. Like C++, you have to know what you're doing, but you can still fuck things up really hardcore, which is why something like Rust is so hyper mega appealing to me because it's like all the benefits of C++ without any of the confusion and you've got a system that's like, hey, you're dumb all yeah. the time. Yeah, so with with C++, um and I love C++. <laughs> I, I love C++. I, I, I love Rust a lot too. Um, I probably love Rust more just because it, like the ownership system and it's so freaking it's it's so cool. Um, Dude, Rust. I feel like Rust has to be the future. Like five years from now, like I I don't think it's even going to be a conversation. Like, is Rust better than C++ or not? Like, absolutely, one hundred percent. Well, it totally well I mean, it, they're both compiled. You're not there. The you're if with Rust, you're getting the compiler. And you're getting pattern matching. I mean that that's that's pretty great. Uh, but with C plus plus, like if you wanted to go and do some stuff in C plus uh, plus, like with the Clang tidy, uh, um, like like lint, I guess it's not a linter; it's a compiler at this point. Like it's part of the uh, um, compiler. If you have if you include it in CMake, like it it can catch a lot of issues that you would typically run into. Like it'll throw warnings and stuff like that. Um, For sure. So it, I think it, it's still a little bit lacking in features compared to Rust, but it, it absolutely the, is. Like the the Rust ownership system is like nothing can really compare to it, dude. It's it's so good, and and it's got cargo built in. That's so that's another thing. Cargo, that's really yes, turns, that cargo is an ultimate win, dude. Um, one of my initial frustrations, like I haven't tried C plus plus in years now. To be honest, uh, it's been maybe two, three, four years at this point. And you have to I go remember and, back when and I was freaking. Uh, you have to. Um, brew install everything that you want to try to import into your uh well i would have been working on in windows and and so it's even more painful and honestly cmake is really painful too it's a dsl but not in the way that like that that's something like the configuration for a, a cargo toml file is or something like it, yeah it's I, a beast I, I i draw similarities between cmake and like um oh what's the uh what's Maven? the um no the maven's uh better looking better, better looking sister <laughs> let's uh i can't gradle? remember gradle yeah i i, I kind of yeah. feel like cmake is very similar to gradle in terms of of how it how you have to 
you know, put together this stuff in a, in a specific language. I remember it being really fucking brutal and just it, it annoyed the absolute hell out of me. And I, I was like, I, I tried for like a solid. OK, so I wanted to make a game and I was like, man, it's got to be this epic 3D MMO type thing. Right. Because I'm, I'm, I'm an idiot. And so I start by like, what's the best 3D renderer? And at the time it was Ogre 3D. And I was like, cool, I'm totally going to compile this and bring it into my my IDE as like a dependency for this project and just start going to work. And it was like 85 hours of work to wrap my head around how the fuck do I like bring Ogre in and just like display a window because it was all this new stuff, you know, linking libraries and all this other crap. Um, and there was just problems at every step of the way, you know? Yeah, yeah it is. It is to totally like a hole in the in the ecosystem uh, where Rust absolutely shines. Um, I, I think overall Rust is lacking in and the eco Rust ecosystem is lacking in a in very specific areas like with robotics and um uh, let me see if I can think of any any other areas that might that might just be, be the main place where it's kind of lacking in the robotics And honestly it's just a matter space. of time. Yeah, oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, um I don't know if you watch any other uh, Rust comp videos, but there's um there's an entire crew of people who are dedicated to uh, robot, like doing robotics and embedded stuff within Rust and, and trying to improve the ecosystem. So it is just and actually that same team is the are the people that are that are really kind of digging into the WebAssembly and WebAssembly system interface stuff. I'm not sure how much you know about that stuff, but um, the creator of Docker said, and I like this is almost word for word here. He said, if WebAssembly had existed five years ago, I never would have needed, or I'm sorry, specifically. WebAssembly system interface. Um, I would never have needed to make Docker because it's the same. It's the same kind of thing where you can take any environment that you're building an application in, really, and you can compile it down. In like so, WebAssembly I think of as a compilation target. The way that you can compile for um, a, a Mac machine or a Windows machine or an AMD processor or anything else, you can compile things now. You know, I say that air quotes. You, can't really compile everything but you can compile certain things now for WebAssembly, which is like a virtual compilation target and then as long as other systems have implemented this interface that allows WebAssembly to run now you've got this ultra small ultra fast binary uh, application system that can be transferred over the web and can just start running you know so you could talk about like actually writing your entire client side like in rust on a server somewhere and it just gets compiled like on command and sent out to clients potentially like if there's an update you know yeah totally i think there is a absolutely a lot of potential there especially in uh like gaming and, and anything like for basic crud apps probably doesn't make the most sense for uh, sure just but for WebXR or some sort of like crazy yeah. 3d experience or or just uh like cloud software for um for very specific kind of complicated tasks like Photoshop, Photoshop in the browser. That's like, you absolutely need something that is better than JavaScript. Uh, you, like if, if you have garbage collection on those, those really um, like memory and CPU intensive applications, like it's just not going to be performing. It's not going to be a good experience. For sure. And honestly, I'm not, I'm not sure how convinced i am of it yet i know for a fact i i feel for a fact that something like WebAssembly system interface and WebAssembly or, or this like idea of transporting binary applications is gonna be the thing i don't know that WebAssembly and WebAssembly system interface are going to be the ones that get us there but they've got to be like a stepping stone in the right direction 
kind of like Svelte when it comes to the compiler or when it comes to the framework layer. I feel like we've got these like really great stepping stones, but it's also wild that people have been working on these exact problems since the 60s and somehow we're still just like, we're kind of there. We're on, we're on the right path. Yeah, well, yeah, it takes time, especially when you have a hiccup uh, with, you know, programming languages like Java. That's yeah, coming in and sure. ruining everything. For sure. But yeah, ben I, had mentioned that too. You've got these people that have been developing Java for 197 years and they're like, what's a singleton? Yeah. Uh, it, yeah, it doesn't help that uh, it, it's a very specific breed of person that care about this this stuff outside of the nine to five. Uh, I, I feel like Semantic Bits is able to really find a lot of those people and I've been able to connect with a lot of those people. So it seems more common but the minute I get out of my little uh, my little safe place where all of my friends love coding outside of work, like not a whole lot of people actually do. Yeah, for sure. I definitely think that um, it is, and that's the that's where it comes down to being, you know, the to making those sheep like decisions. I mean, and a lot of times it's really not an individual developer's decision to make. Like I said earlier, everybody has to be a team player. So, and Ben mentioned this too. You've got some architect, some guy that's sitting up top. I can specifically name a name here. I'm not going to do that. Um, where they they're at the top and they're like making technical decisions about something they have no like no foot in the game in. Like they they don't have to develop it. They don't have to worry about maintaining it. But they're really strongly opinionated about the fact that it needs to be done this way, or they've they've already maybe made a decision and they don't want to look bad. Yeah. Yep. I'm, I'm with you on that. I, uh, so I, I've, I was a tech lead or I guess I technically, I still am on this new project that I'm on. Uh, the teams just haven't been formed yet, but I've been in the tech lead role for, I don't know, 10 months or so now. And, uh, so I'm still kind of fresh and, I just can't even fathom the idea of like having like putting my foot down and forcing some sort of design that nobody else agrees with. Uh like the not only does it feel morally wrong, but it also just feels like I'm I'm stabbing people in the back or like and and potentially just hemorrhaging cash. Yeah, absolutely. And so um one thing that I really like to do like any any idea that I've ever had, I open source it um, to my team at, at the very least. So if I if we have some particular problem and I'm like, okay, maybe we can do you know X, Y, and Z or build this other thing over here to try and solve this, I say, what do you guys think about this? Like, what what kind of issues do you foresee in this? Uh, I I think a lot of people get really caught up in their position and forget how human they actually are. Um, because I know... I've definitely seen it. I've seen it in real time. Yeah, I, I absolutely know how many mistakes I do make, and, and my ideas are usually probably not the best, and especially the first one that I come up with. It's not going to be the best idea. Um, but my... I, I don't know. I I have a hard time coming to terms with the idea that an architect and a tech lead is a person who makes decisions. Uh, I feel like it, they should be people that accept responsibility. They are not people that, that necessarily put their foot down and make decisions. They're just the people who take responsibility for those decisions. Um, hear me out here. Hear me out here. I, I, I've been saying this for a couple of years now. 
Um, and this stems from, uh, I played a lot of fighting games competitively and in particular Smash Bros, which is really not the best time to be saying that I'm a Smash Bros player. I don't know if you've been <laughs> following any of that, but <laughs> I have been. Yeah. Dude, that's insane. Uh, we, we, we don't even have time to get into that, but, um, so I, I've been believing for years now that the true meta of competition, and I'm not saying like every game should work this way, but I'm saying that I think the best games that like the best competitive gaming experience possible is doubles. I think anything higher than doubles is too complex. And I think anything less than doubles is not interesting enough socially. That's just my take. But because of that, I started tossing this idea around a while ago. What about co-tech leads? So let's say you've got a project of nine developers and you've got two tech leads that have exactly the same amount of responsibility and work consistently together and like form like a really close partnership, not just as people who like very dryly make decisions together, but you know, like friends and, and really work towards, you know, the betterment of everything. Of course, still open sourcing the ideas to the team at large for, for feedback. But I think having one person in an echo chamber by themselves is not a good thing. Yeah, I, I fully subscribe to that that line of thinking. And I will say, even though it wasn't like official, like it, it wasn't official on my team, that's essentially what I had. Uh, I have a, so whenever I first started on, on the team that I was on back in like August, it was just me and one other guy. And then like the, since it was, was a new Jeff? project, out of uh, curiosity. So Jeff was the architect. Um, gotcha. and, and Jeff is really, really smart and he has a bunch of good ideas, but he, I've been lucky enough to where he, uh, what gave me a lot of freedom and trust to like make decisions. Um, and so far he hasn't been the kind of person to like put his foot down and enforce uh, specific decisions. He, I was thinking about asking him to be on the podcast. Do you think that'd be a good idea? Uh, yeah, I think it, if you had like specific, uh, topics, he would probably totally be interested. I also have another guy that I think would be awesome to be on the podcast, uh, who now works at, um, uh, uh, semantic bits. And I, th I'm, I'm about to be on the team with him. His name's Adam Davis. He, uh, I'll, I'll send you a couple of his blog posts. He is very opinionated on some things that I, I just, and I talked to him for about an hour today on these things and he, he's just a hoot. And, uh, I, I really enjoy talking to him. Yeah, for sure. Honest, as a side note, I'd really love to have you back on the podcast, like whenever you're available. Yeah. I mean, whenever you want to have me, I, I, pretty much love any topic that you're going to talk about on this thing. Yeah. But, I mean, if, even if you wanted to, if you wanted to potentially try and make it like a regular thing, I think that'd be cool. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm open to that. Um, what was I saying? It was about, Oh yeah. So it was just me and, and one other guy who wasn't Jeff. He, he, this guy was actually on my team and this was before, um, before I was officially the tech lead. I just kind of started assuming the responsibility of the tech lead. Cause there was really nobody else. Cause the, the, uh, my, the coworker I was with, his name's Mike. He, uh, he was like the only one on the team with me and he was a new hire. So we didn't understand the project or anything like that. So I just kind of had to, um, uh, do what needed to be done for that particular project. And he kind of became like, like my go-to guy. Like, like I felt like, like my entire team, I felt like I could trust with anything I gave them, but the way he was able to, poke holes in like any idea I came up with and, and like provide this counter argument to, to everything that I did was like invaluable. Um, and I think it's really important for people to find that in whatever position they're in. 
Yeah, for sure. And honestly, um, that that's actually probably a lot of why I left Semantic Bits. Um, I was just getting, like, first of all, the technology was getting really stale. And to be honest, they did kind of give me the runaround on switching teams for like an excessively long period of time in their defense. And I'm not like, I'm not, uh, I'm not raising myself up here. Legitimately, I had been on the project since day one and I had made like almost every decision about it. Even though I was never the tech lead on the project, I was like the semi co-tech lead for literally every step of the way. And I'm the only developer that was there from day one until I left, which was almost like, it's like this three and a half years. Um, which is a long time for one project, really. Yeah, especially and in this industry. For sure, yeah. And especially at Semantic Bits, where their their velocity is like actually pretty incredible. So um, I just was really vital to the project at that point, which is not me tooting my own horn, but it's like they really needed me because of the fact that I had been there from day one. And, you know, who better to have working on the project than somebody who gave birth to it? Um, so... But all of that said, I was get, it was getting really stale and I just didn't really feel like I was having much of an impact anymore. To be honest, I was kind of being I was being a bit lazy, too. And that was that was really bothering me. It just hit me really wrong when I would just kind of like have these really unproductive days because I just felt really demotivated. Like this is the same shit I've been doing for three and a half years. The project's been out there. It's basically done. Like, do I really care about implementing this new like replacement file server application for the CMS a team you know not really and in the end they don't care either they're just kind of like punching a clock on their end i mean it's it's wild like sometimes you'll have you'll have two people in the same week that are really really strongly opinionated about something that change the mind of the of the of what's going to happen for something change the direction you know it needs to be implemented this way and then someone else will turn around and be like no it needs to be implemented this way and they're really firm about it but neither of those two people have discussed it at all somehow yeah, it, yeah, that's totally the problem with with any, and I saw this at the state level too. Like any any kind of government contracting, this seems to be an issue. I don't know why. Maybe it's just how, maybe it's just how like the work environment is for government systems. Like it kind of seems like if if you work for the government, uh, it's a little easier to just not care as much um, because like a lot of government jobs, it's really hard to get fired from. Um, and I don't, I don't want to, Oh my God. Yes. I, so many stories of just like, how the fuck is this person still getting paid? Actually, it doesn't make any sense. Uh, because I honestly, I, I don't want to like, I don't want to get too into the meta of that, but I think that there might not be enough pressure at the top of that chain to make that happen quickly. Yeah. Totally. In fact, I think not making it happen quickly might be to their benefit sometimes. Yep. And and so like I've been very lucky on the project that I've been on with Semantic Bits. Like the people that I work with uh that are in the federal government, they're all really awesome. Uh I, I applaud them for handling all of the crazy curveballs that get thrown at them from like Congress and 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 everything that's going on. Like they they are legitimately trying to do the best they can to um to like build up this software. Um but in general, like it just seems really hard to get some things to move and to get a consensus whenever you're building government systems. And yeah, I, it's kind of unfortunate. And I think it might be part of the reason why so many software projects in the government are so over budget and late. Like I, 
I think it, it's kind of a stretch to blame all private companies every single time for that. I think it's a it's a mix of uh, incompetence from private companies as well as incompetence from the government organization. Yeah, there's legitimately I like for me there's no argument to be made that they could even that they could even be like let they are they are at least half at fault. I probably would say every time. Of course, I I'm like blindsided in that by the fact that I've only really worked with the one team on the one project for so long and they were consistently having trouble with that stuff. Um so I'm not I'm not going to go out on a limb and say that it's like the reality, but from my perspective, yeah, it's it's an inescapable truth that they are definitely at least half the problem. Yeah, and and since it's it's all being paid with taxpayer money, it's so easy to just say no, do it this other way. We'll we'll just throw money at you. Like uh like it's so easy to just switch because it's funded. It uh like like it's in the budget. We need to use all that budget. Like you can't have money left over in a government budget. So yeah, switch that thing. Let's let's push this push the release back a month and switch this thing. And I don't know. It just I think I think it's there's something inherently wrong with the uh with the structure. Yeah, one hundred percent. How are we doing on time for you? Are you are you about to have to jump off, or do you still got a little bit? I got a little bit more time since we we okay. uh, I'm not falling falling asleep, which was my initial concern. If we were to start a little later than we were, I'm an early yeah, riser, way. unfortunately. Oh, dude, I am. Uh, my my life is chaos, man. <laughs> like, uh, legitimately, I am not bullshitting you here. I think I've had eight hours of sleep since Saturday. Like, as a like in total. I, I can't do that, unfortunately. That that's very crazy. <laughs> that is crazy indeed. I think I would Hon- be honestly, it's uh it's very taxing and I don't know how I do it. Sometimes I, I'll have a great day where I'm like this, and then other days I'll have a day where I like I really pay that price, you know, where my body's just like, Yeah, fuck you, dude. I'd, I'd be emotional, man. If I if I had that much sleep, I'd cry at like the drop of a pen. True. Yeah, I, I'm uh, I'm honestly really tame when it comes to the sleepiness stuff. I also have a lot of issues with insomnia, and I always have. So it's not necessarily new for me, but it's it's been good because, like I said, I, you know, earlier I mentioned I get my ten hours of productive time in a day. And life hack for you, it's a lot easier to do that if you only sleep thirty five minutes that day. Um, you have a <laughs> yeah. little bit extra time to like you know get get some shit done. But that it has been good for me. My my real problem is that my most productive time when it comes to software and learning is like two to seven in the morning. Somehow, like that's just where my rhythm happens to be. Yeah, my mine is usually like five a.m. to maybe eleven. Uh, eleven a.m. is probably like my golden hour, and then after I eat lunch, it kind of like whoo, straight down. And then during yeah, the evening uh, and afternoon, I'm usually hanging out with the family, spending some time with the kiddo. I don't know what it is. The sun fucks me up, man. Like as soon as the sun comes up, I'm like, I can't do that anymore. <laughs> I have to watch some Netflix or something or actually go to bed finally. Um, that's been more recently. I they, Honestly, I really need to get back to working out. I'm definitely not in my best shape right now. And it's something I've been struggling with recently. And I've been doing like hardcore dieting stuff. Uh, I tried keto. That actually made me really sick. Um, so I, I couldn't really hang out with that too much. Um, but uh, I've been eating really well and I need to get back into working out because when I'm working out steadily and right and doing my body some justice, um, I never have trouble sleeping. I go to bed at like midnight every day and sleep until 830 and I'm good to go. Yeah, I mean, uh, so th- this whole pandemic thing has has totally killed my workout schedule as well. 
so the only reason I'm doing okay there is because I don't know, uh, I spent like my late teens up until my, uh, like maybe like last year, I was like really, really into, uh, consistently working out and fitness and all kinds of stuff. And so I, I'm still kind of retaining that a little bit, but I, I don't have much longer until, until it's going to start going South really fast. So I really need to get yeah. it back in my routine. Honestly, I'm sad because I had a little bit extra cash and I was like, man, I'm going to build a home gym. And I picked out all the shit and I, I like I had the money put aside for it. Of course, I'm also a musician. So like I have now spent that money. Uh, but the reason <laughs> I didn't I didn't spend it on the workout equipment is because the company I was going to go with Rogue, they were out of they were just out of stock of all the stuff that I wanted um, for so long. And probably because of the pandemic, I think everybody's like, yeah. man, I really need to work out. It is. It's because of the pandemic. Uh, luckily, I bought all my basement stuff whenever we uh, last summer, whenever we moved into uh, this house. And so I have it like I have everything I need. I'm just lazy. I just don't want to go down there and, and work out. But I I'm jealous, man. That, that's one of my upcoming goals is to to get a setup for myself. I have been doing like the the flooring in my house, though. We're ripping up all the carpet and all the old floor and putting down some uh, um, some vinyl plank flooring. And that is really killer. So I, I think I'm also using that as, as an excuse like, oh, this weekend I'm going to, you know, floor a, a bedroom. That's, you know, that's working out. Sure. I think it's it's active enough, right? It, I wake up more sore than I usually am when I work out. So it certainly is doing something t terrible to my body and that's really what life's all about right yeah abusing the body is what we live for okay so um i i had listed as one of our topics um making choices as a freelancer i don't know <clears throat> how much we want to get into that but okay let's let's do this i don't want to get too too heavy into the reasoning so that we can move through some other topics too potentially but just give me your tech stack right now. Like, let's say that you had an app that you were going to build and you knew what the app was and you were really passionate about it. Um, and you, you like thought that, you know, Hey, I'm going to scale up to at least a million users here, no matter what, like if I build this thing, people are definitely going to want it. Um, what tech stack do you choose for that project? So first off, what is it? Is it like a transactional application or what are we talking here? Okay, let me just give you like a full outline. Um, so in this case, uh, since this like stems from a real application that I want to build because I'm actually passionate about it, um, it, essentially it would be like a very simple social platform for musicians. The main focus of which is just finding local musicians to jam with, but eventually scaling that out to be like all the tools that a musician could need, including gigging musicians in New York who have really complex gigging schedules and practice schedules and uh band leaders out there that are like i mean obviously right now there's kind of a damper on all of that but um if the world gets back to what it's doing there's a bunch of opportunities to do like regional stuff like that um so as far as the mvp it's really just the ability to log in make a profile and search for other people's profiles based on location fairly simple and okay. of course like a messaging system. So message like, at some is there going to be a file storage system share around like um like MP3s at some point stuff? at some point 100% uh for MVP no. Okay. So so since that would be a desirable in the future, I would not go with with Firebase uh, for uh, the cost. Yes, the the file system for Firebase uh, can get really expensive so like a lot of net, network traffic for uh file sharing. Like Firebase is not not the way you want to go. Sure. Their authentication um, system as well is really pricey, I think. 
Uh, so I, I've never had any trouble with the authentication system uh, if you do it well enough. Uh, and same with their their Firestore. Like if you if you handle Firestore really well, uh, it you could probably not end up paying any money for it for a very long time. But with with that network, the network costs of of file transferring is just really really expensive initially. Um, so I I in all honesty, if it so my my gut reaction with something like that is to initially um like use some technology I'm curious about but I'm going to go for the the tech stack that I feel like would be like a long term good choice to make uh and that would honestly just be a react and node application so and I'm going to dig a little bit into the the infrastructure as well so I think I would probably roll with with react and stick with the context and hooks API. I probably wouldn't worry about using uh, store uh, any other third-party store um, man or state management like MobX or Redux. Um, and then I would use just very very simple Express APIs um, and try to. I, I I don't really buy into like the necessarily like the microservice uh, infrastructure. I think you can have a uh, like one API for all your different routes. I don't necessarily think you need like 17 different express applications to handle these microservices um, because the way that you can scale out, like I, I don't know if it necessarily makes sense. Um, so once you have all that built, you're going to need to deploy that. Um, so I'm most experienced with AWS. I, I really want to know, like do more on, on Google Cloud Platform. Like I've done a lot with Firebase, but that's not necessarily Google Cloud Platform. I've done a little bit with App Engine and how easy it is to deploy App Engine. Um, but I kind of lean on AWS as uh, in terms of reliability and uh, in, in their infrastructure. So I probably would do something like um, like ECS and Fargate. Uh, so ECS and Fargate would make it a serverless, um, serverless infrastructure. You would create, have Docker images, deploy your Docker images to ECR, uh, and then your services on ECS would, would pick up those Docker images whenever you need to scale or not scale. Um, true. Honestly, I think nowadays you can actually, uh, you can get away without doing it with Docker. Um, you could just like host it using lambdas or something and yeah like yeah you you absolutely can build microservices with just lambda and have it like completely um serverless i am not too big into that style of infrastructure so while i like while i like using aws i don't want to be absolutely married to it uh so that's why i don't really like oh, doing yeah, that's a great that's a great point i don't like really doing the um and that's that's one issue with with Firebase as well. Like if you uh, if you go all in on Firebase, you're stuck with Firebase unless you want a big refactor effort. Um, For sure, yeah, that's definitely the reason I I started by straying away from that. Um, what what's Fire, as well? Firebase is uh, Firebase functions are a lot cooler than AWS Lambdas because you can actually hook in an entire Express API into one Firebase function. Uh, so so that gives you that lets you decouple it. Uh, from the Firebase platform quite a bit more 
But with lambdas, I don't necessarily think that you have that ability. You might be able to. There might be a knowledge that I'm lacking there. Um, but yeah, so what, what were you going to say before I, I ramble on some more about AWS? No, I, I was going to ask, uh, I definitely was going to ask something. That's for sure. <laughs> um, honestly, I think it's, I think it's lost forever. Okay, that's fine. So, so yeah, ECS, Fargate, auto scaling, um, load balancers, all, all that fun stuff. Um, probably use S3 for storage. I uh, want to make sure you have life cycle, uh, hooks on your, your S3, um, buckets for, for files that aren't going to be used often, you know, after 90 days, send them to a different storage tier. So you're saving money. Um, I think, I think honestly, I'm probably going to use, um, <clears throat> digital ocean and you know, I might look into, uh, using Kubernetes to manage everything. Yeah. I, I've used digital ocean quite a bit. I didn't use Kubernetes on it. I used it before they had like a uh, Kubernetes, like all managed. Um, yeah, Kubernetes is a very solid, uh, way forward, especially, uh, and I, it's super I, hip right now. I was looking at some salaries for Kubernetes engineers the other day and I was like, oh man, I need to get on that. Shit. <laughs> yeah, it, it is very popular. I mean, uh, that's why EKS service exists. So you can just plop your Kubernetes clusters into, uh, into AWS without pretty much any setup. Um, but I, I think something that is undervalued for a lot of people, especially on these small projects, is infrastructure as code. Uh, so if I were you, I would look into using Terraform. Yeah, for sure. I've, it's kind of been on my uh, on my radar for a bit now. So uh, I, back I've when got... I was contracting for that that Meteor JS failed thing, I was I was trying to convince them to use Terraform. Yeah, I, I've used Terraform quite a bit now, and I I love it. And I think DigitalOcean does have a uh, I think DigitalOcean is a provider for Terraform. I think I just saw a release for that. So you can like totally script out all of your resources in Terraform, uh, run one command, everything gets hoisted up into the cloud and created. And then if you want to destroy it, one command, everything gets destroyed. Uh, and it actually keeps track of state. So if you like, if you, if you create a server with a, with a specific configuration, you deploy it, uh, it's keeping Terraform's keeping track of your state. And then like, you're like, Oh crap, the server needs updates. Like I need to update a configuration. I need to change the, the, the base image that it's using, uh, or something. You make the change in Terraform, you apply the Terraform. It says, Hey, this is what it used to look like. This is what it does look like. This is what it's going to look like. Is that cool? You has, you know, if it's cool, then it goes and makes those changes. Um, and so it, I just think it does a really awesome job at having like immutable and repeatable infrastructure, which is incredibly undervalued, especially if you're working in a place that creates servers through a GUI. Yeah, no doubt. Um, let's see what else we got. Um, oh, what I, well, that's what I was going to ask before. Uh, what would you use? So when you say a, a typical express app, I'm curious, are you talking about just vanilla JavaScript or would you still go TypeScript? Um, so if it were just me, I, I would probably just use JavaScript. Uh, so I, I'm not like a, a huge TypeScript diehard. Um, I see TypeScript as a tool to be there for the developer. 
to, to help give insight into what's happening in your code. Uh, like having interfaces for, for specific objects that you know are going to be shaped a certain way. Uh, there, there are a lot of people that uh, are like strict mode TypeScript diehards for it. That'll be like, no, you can't use the any type. You can't do that. That's why you're using TypeScript. But I am totally fine with using the any type, like if it's literally an object that can be anything. Um, so, I mean, there's a chance I would use TypeScript depending on how complex the uh, the the API is. If I have some like really complex objects that I'm working around with on the API that have like 20 fields, I don't want to remember all those fields. So I'd probably type up an interface in TypeScript and, and just type the parameter so that I, I at least have some IntelliSense around what, what field names are. Yeah, no, that totally makes a lot of sense. Um, I don't know. You might, you might have, uh, you might have actually transformed my approach to the backend because honestly, the nice thing about using Nest.js is for the most part, I can kind of just yank my services out and drop them into an express app and, uh, they're probably okay to go. Yeah. That's, that's the beauty about JavaScript. I mean, it's, uh, it's like, you can really kind of mess yourself up, but it, it there's like some freedom with JavaScript that I, just really like and it's like I've been in the the like Scala and Spark world for the last ten months, and I so miss... I, I want to talk about that a bit. Yeah, what do you um? So uh, from the outside looking in, I, I got this. I got on this kick, and I was like, man, I really need to learn functional programming. And I got like ten percent of the way into that, and I was like, oh man, Lisp is really cool. And I got like you know nine percent of the way into that. Um. I'm just curious. Uh, I, I really wanted to learn Scala and I kept meaning to get to it and I kept meaning to get to it. And actually it, when I, when I left semantic bits, I had been really trying to get into the Scala stuff that you guys were doing as we talked about a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, I'm curious. So what's your takeaway from, from working on it for 10 months? Do you like Scala? I, so I like Scala enough. I do not like spark. Uh, so there's a distinct difference there. Spark has its own DSL. And it's not Scala. Uh, so you're writing Spark in a Scala file, and it's technically Scala code, but it's the Spark DSL. It's, you know, Scala is very macro heavy. Um, and I don't know. So I don't like Spark. Uh, you might as well, like, I'd rather go and write Rust on, on a mainframe before I write more Spark code. Um, but Scala itself, I think is pretty cool. Um, so, so I'll get started by saying it is another JVM language. And with that, it comes with most of the pain points of the JVM. However, SBT kind of helps alleviate a lot of those simple build tool. Uh, that's pretty easy to use. Some of the actual like command line syntax is really funky and I don't like it. But, uh, but for the most to be part, honest, the last time I tinkered with it, I used something called SDK man, which I, it filled a, a, a gap that I thought was still completely empty. And that was for just like environment management with Java, you know, and I thought that was pretty cool. It at least makes the barrier to entry a little bit lower. Yeah. So one thing that sucks about Scala is that you have to be on Java eight. You cannot use anything else. Uh, so it's still apparent. There were some changes within Java that have really screwed up. Like you they just haven't been able to port it, uh, is my understanding of it. But um, so the the dependency issues weren't too bad. 
um, you can still very much find yourself in a, into where like, oh, there's a uh, there's one package that needs updated because of security vulnerability, but you update it and now you know 50 other dependencies in two of your other libraries are now like totally screwed up. Um, so that's not fun. But in terms of syntax, I think it's mostly really cool. I love uh, implicit parameters in Scala. I think it's a it's a really neat take on kind of this um, pseudo dependency injection style. Uh, implicit parameters where if you specify a parameter as implicit, you don't have to, if you do not provide that parameter in the parameter group, the uh, the compiler actually goes and looks for it uh, in the scope above the function call. So if you, if for example, if you have a method called add that takes an implicit integer uh, variable A, and it's an implicit uh, variable. If you don't provide it, then it's going to look up in scope and say, is there an implicit variable that is an integer? If it is, I'm just going to use that. So that you could do this to accomplish uh, dependency injection with uh, type services of some type, right? Yeah. So like, uh, so my main use case of it is whenever you create a Spark session, uh, you have to use that Spark session object to do all of your Spark stuff. I just make that Spark uh, that uh, Spark session an implicit parameter, so every function that is used in the same scope as that implicit Spark session variable automatically has access to it within its own scope. So you don't have to go and pass it, which I think I think that's pretty cool. I also think the pattern matching is really cool, which it's like it's really cool in Rust and it's really cool in in Scala as well. Um, but Scala is is a highly functional programming language. It isn't technically a functional programming language, so you still have uh, like you can still make classes and and do object oriented programming. Uh, I wouldn't say that I'm a functional programming uh like extravaganza like i'm not you know super crazy uh functional programming but i like taking the goods of it and applying that uh, applying it where i can i i have had a better experience having like declarative um programming versus you know imperative like use a dot for each method instead of a for loop. Like you don't need to go and just like it, it, if it's available, you don't need to go and describe what actually is gonna, going to happen. Yeah, for sure. I, I messed around with, um, and man, what is it even called at this point? Uh, it's this crazy language for the front end. Um, I mean, I'm looking it up real quick. Oh, I don't know why it's kind of, I'm blanking on it. Um, Elm. Have you have you messed with Elm at all? I have not. I've heard about it though. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. Uh it's it seems really awesome, but getting into it just I don't know, for some reason it's kind of hard. Um it, it usually comes back to uh like, oh man, I really gotta get this done. And how much struggle between, you know, getting it done and uh learning some new stuff. It's kind of like a balance, you know. Like I don't mind learning new stuff, but it can't hold me back from being able to accomplish the task. Is this, is this like Haskell? Yes. I think it's, it very is heavily inspired by Haskell. I am, uh, I have a hard time reading Haskell. It reminds me of, it kind of reminds me of like looking at code from like the, the fifties. Like, why am I doing this? Uh, For sure. <laughs> Speaking of which I got really into Lisp and honestly, I think it's really, really cool. 
Um, what makes me sad is there's this wonderful, fantastic language called Clojure, and I actually love it. I've done a lot of messing around with it. Um, I started going through uh, the Euler's like math problems and implementing them in, in Clojure. Uh, I just absolutely hate that it's a JVM language. And nowadays there's Clojure script, but you know, I just I like JavaScript enough. Yeah, totally. And I think that I think um, that kind of brings us into the the topic that we had of uh, like continuously learning. And we've touched on it a few times where you know only specific people are really interested in <laughs> continuously learning. But I think in general it gives us such a huge advantage in the market because we're able to we're we're not just having this high level understanding of what's happening in, in X, Y, and Z. Like we're we are actually going out and continuing to learn after we uh after we get the the job that pays the bills. And also I think that uh that kind of leans into some some other stuff, which we don't have to talk too too much about this, but I think something that we've all probably heard a lot recently, mostly thrown around as a buzzword, is automation. You know, like, oh, everybody's job is going to get automated away. And while some of that is probably very painfully and kind of scarily true, um, you know, even like one thing I think about, I mean, there's there's nice things. Uh, there There are some unions out there protecting these types of jobs, but people like truckers, once self-driving cars are the the norm or maybe even only the legal thing, the only legal allowance anymore, which I don't know if we'll ever get there. Everybody disagrees with me about that. But I think once self-driving cars become like a mainstay, they're probably going to outlaw actual driving. Just my opinion. Everyone disagrees, but um, I think we're, I think we're maybe like a hundred years away from that, but I think so that long. Yeah. Um, and mainly I think, I think like a decade, dude, honestly. So I, I, so the generation that's, one generation ahead of us is are going to be the ones making the laws for the next 20 years. Uh, so the generation that's ahead of them are the ones making the laws now. And I don't see that passing. Uh, at least, I don't see that even becoming remotely on the board for at least 20 years. And even then, I don't see it. Uh, like, I, I genuinely think there is going to be legislation that is going to be passed to prevent automating people out of jobs. Um, oh yeah, for sure. And I'm totally, I'm totally for that. Where I was going with that before I forget, um, is that I think the continuous learning thing, honestly, I like some people think, Oh, you know, the people in software, like those are the ones who are going to be fine. Like that's actually maybe not true with the, with the rise of AI and machine learning and moving from actual frameworks to compilers, especially if we talk about, you know, a UI-based DSL that can just allow people to implement applications of all shapes and sizes instantaneously with the push of a button. Um, our jobs are probably going to go away. Like what we're doing right now are probably going to go away for the most part, I think, over the next five to 10 years. And instead of working on things like individual web apps, we will probably be the types of people working on things like the systems to help other people build them or higher level abstractions or moving into machine learning and AI and the things that are, you know, the next step in the evolution of the software industry. Yeah. And th that's exactly why I wake up every morning and I, I work on like a machine learning course, or my, my goal is to be good enough at machine learning and like, like robotics and stuff to have, uh, like the upper hand, uh, if I ever wanted to get into that field, 
or if, or I if ever you had to. to yeah yeah imagine like even even if you had like a super basic understanding of like the next wave of technology which in my opinion is probably uh what i would call like normalization i don't i don't know there's probably a word for this out there but like the web assembly system interface type of thing um or having sort of a normalized code base or just like the idea of, of UI in client applications sort of going away, like this brand divisibility kind of like becoming a thing of the past at some point where it's more about functionality and everything's like really streamlined and, and maybe even there are laws kind of prohibiting you from from making excessively different UIs potentially. Um, I'm not sure that we're going to go that way. But the point is that um, I think I think we're definitely pushing towards a point where you have to know the the new wave of stuff. So, you know, compilation, um, machine learning, AI, and probably extended reality. So I think anybody that gets into VR or XR, AR, whatever you want to call it, I think they'll probably be safe for a long time too. But I think if you're just a web app developer, honestly, that's probably not going to cut it in five to 10 years. You want to at least be at a point where you can, like if the entire system of economy, if like some AI takes over the, the entire space of the workforce somehow, um, and it's just like an unbeatable cost saving for every company in the world. Um, and there's no, like their businesses, they're going to make that decision every single time, especially if they can have literally zero developers and be able to turn out their apps and their changes in like actual minutes or days, uh, with just some guy that's really focused on the business itself. Um, if that starts to happen, our jobs will disappear and I'm not saying it will, but if it does, you want to at least be able to grab onto the edge of the tray as everyone slides off and be like, I can at least do this entry level thing. Yeah. So, uh, first I would love to do another episode where we actually talk about uh, AI and how it might, how it could impact everything in the future, or how for sure. And I have I have some hot takes on that topic, so yeah, just prepare. And, and even whenever it comes to to the political uh, realm, like there's a lot that I I want to talk about there. But this this continued learning, I say, is what it's what's given me a lot of confidence. Um, like I said before, I'm really confident in my ability to kind of just do anything, anything that I kind of need. Like, I don't want to sound overly cocky here. Like, I'm not uh, crazy intelligence. Like, uh, I'm not, like I just said a, a sentence that doesn't even make sense. Um, I am not crazy intelligence. <laughs> I am not crazy intelligence. Uh, but I'm very, very comfortable in figuring stuff out. Uh and I think and that's that right it, where I am too. That I and I think it's honestly like maybe maybe I'm biased here, but I think that's the sweet spot. Like you could be the ultimate like computer sciencey tryhard, and some people their brains are wired that way. Unfortunately, not me. Uh, but you know, I think that's the sweet spot where it's like you know you're you're not super opinionated in the wrong ways, and you are ready to jump ship at the drop of a hat if that's what needs to happen. Yeah, I mean, like if if I lost my job and the only thing available was for me to go work on like the kernel of some crazy artificial system, artificial intelligence system, I would have no reservations about doing that. I, I am, and honestly, if if the entire industry tanked and the only job I could get was maintaining a really badly written, like even for that ecosystem, COBOL mainframe, and I had to do it, like I would just do it. Yeah, I mean, it, and I think that is a skill that is so undervalued. And I feel like if if 90% of the web developers that exist right now were laid off and the only jobs available were, were even just low-level programming, they would be screwed. Uh, and it's because there is this um, complacency 
and like most of these jobs pay really well. Uh, most that's, of them. That's the real issue because they, they pay so incredibly well for like what some of the people involved in the industry really are capable of. Like I, I know some people that have made more money than me, which is not my, that's not my metric for success by any means, but like also we're just complete and utter imbeciles. And I don't, I mean that in the nicest way possible. Like I'm not saying everybody should be great at software, but like if someone's getting paid in excess of six figures a year, they should probably be pretty competent. And I've met a lot of people that check that box and really aren't. Yeah. Especially in, in government. Um, but yeah, actually I mean, for me personally, it's been, it's been less rampant for me in the government space, but so I, so, uh, I knew somebody who had the title webmaster within a government agency and I, I, their salary was public, I believe. And it was like, uh, over like 160,000 a year. And I know for a fact that they did nothing like their entire job was to basically like gloss over meetings and then look at uh like do really random things and like wordpress-esque sites and it's like well i mean you don't like why why like why is why is this a thing and i think it's because people don't know better uh people just assume like oh this is software this is coding this is computer stuff go go at the find same a time, nerdy I person i feel like i feel like that is actually a really great skill um, and I honestly think that it's probably going to become only more important as time goes on, having that ability to like take a system that allows you to implement software and to implement it. I mean, at, at some point when it comes to client applications, that might be the only job that exists other than the, you know, if we compare it to the population now, if you take the amount of people using react and the amount of people building react, it is a largely different number. Yep. And if you, if you think about it the same way, like if. If there's a trillion people using this thing to um to to make a piece of software with it, there's probably only nine developers, you know. Yeah, totally. And I think that kind of brings me into uh like I, I And usually... some of those developers might be AI themselves. <laughs> One of these days at least. <laughs> yeah. But that that kind of brings me and I guess this this might be able to be something I could say in closing since we're a bit over two hours. Um so one, I think one of the main drivers for why I'm so interested in and like continuously improving my skills is because eventually I, I really want to do something that actually has a huge impact. Um, so like the software that, that we're working in right now, it, it has an impact well, that semantic bits works on. It, it totally does have an impact. Um, but there's something inside me that just wants more. Like I want to do more. I want to, um, do something cooler for the world. Like whenever I see, uh, whenever I see autonomous vehicles, uh, self-driving cars, whenever I see, uh, SpaceX making their own rockets and software to launch rockets, like and do, or even thorn.org, which we talked about the other day. Yeah. Thorn.org. Um, like whenever I see these companies, I think like, man, like, like they're doing, really revolutionary things that that is either making like pushing humankind forward or uh, it whether it's um like ec economically forward or whether it's socially forward like that's where i want to be like i want to be able to do something there um 
that's actually one of the big things that's got me hyped about this music app that I'm building because as a musician, I know that this space, there's actually a void here somehow. Like, I don't know how it's 2020 and there's a void here, but, but there is. And honestly, I decline, I, I sort of, uh, attribute it partially to the decline of the instrument uh, in the, the 21st century. But, uh, I'm sorry, you were saying, uh, what was I saying? Well, yeah, that that's my drive to like be bigger than I am or like better than I am to do more than I am doing is kind of what keeps fueling me. I feel like at some point I'm either like going to have an existential crisis or something and be like, Oh, I'm 40 years old. I've done nothing. Ah. And then maybe have like some weird flunk, uh, like hint of depression or something like that. But that's always on the book. I'm literally living that life, but it's like, ah, I'm 26 and I've done nothing and somehow have this egregious guilt that I need to get off of my shoulders. Yeah. Right. Um, That honestly, what you just talked about is one of my driving forces. It's like, I want to just do more and be better. And that's why, I kind of felt stale at at semantic bits is because I guess it kind of if it started to be numbed I started to be numb to the impact I was actually having and you know to be quite frank the job that I just took on um I would say has significantly less actual impact and it has not helped things so I'm definitely stuck in this void right now where I'm like I really need to find something better to do with my time, something more impactful, something that gives back to people or society. And honestly, that's why I started the podcast. Cause it's like, I've never been super great at sitting down and trying to find the absolute perfect job. Um, I always am sort of like cast a line and eventually one bites. And I think just due to necessity in the past, I'm used to being like, Oh, you know, you can't let this opportunity go. Um, yeah, totally. And sometimes you just have to pay the bills. Uh, so, um, like the, the, all of this is kind of one reason why I also only want to have one kid. Um, because I mean, my daughter is, is totally my world overall. Um, like I, everything that I do is going to make sure, like I have to make sure that she is going to live the best life that she totally can. But once that's fulfilled, which I would say at, at this point, I'm on track for that totally being fulfilled. Um, like there's just so much more I want to do and like I'm going to be 38 whenever she graduates high school. So I'm still going to have a lot of time left and I want to be able to be at a point to where I can say, okay, now what, what do I do? How do I, um, now that I have all of this time where I don't have to focus on, on making this child's childhood like fantastic where can i now put this time into trying to make the world a better place uh and and so i feel like i'm doing everything that i can to build up to that moment while also like maybe there's a chance that i can achieve some of these goals while still you know being a parent and working full-time and trying to do the best i can in, in my actual career for sure and I think that's probably a, a great place to stop. Uh, honestly, uh, I really appreciate you coming on. Um, it, I think it was a really great conversation. I, I would love to do it again, uh, maybe even soon, whenever you're available. Um, I hope that you had a good time. And uh, I honestly, I've definitely learned a thing or two just just chatting with you. So I think it was really productive. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed doing this talk. It's also kind of like therapy, I'd say maybe. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm. it's a pandemic here. So I have lots of lots of time to just talk (laughs) and yeah and there's nothing better when it comes to 
like what, what you were talking about, continuous learning and, and really grinding outside of, of work, it can be really painful, especially when you have a family. I, I haven't mentioned, but I, I just uh, got engaged, uh, you know, maybe six months ago and my fiance has a child who is seven. And so now she's, she's my kid and I've, you know, I've been with her for a year and a half, almost two years now. And so I, I've, I'm like in the exact same spot, you know, um, I'm probably a little behind you on the curve of like setting her up for the best possible childhood, like definitely got to get on getting a house and stuff, but, uh, you know, same, same pathway. And I think having, having someone to bounce ideas off of and, you know, talk about direction with someone that's actually engaged in the conversation and not just like, yeah, uh-huh. Um, sure. I think yeah. that's really powerful. That sounds good. Yeah. Yeah. I'm with you. I'm totally with you. Um, yeah. I mean, and, and don't worry too much about like buying a house whenever, because often my kid says, I miss the apartment. That's hilarious. So, so I'm like, well, what, what the hell? <laughs> yeah. Fuck me. Right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. I'm just stuck. I'm stuck in a weird spot because uh, my rent here is like insane and uh, moving is also insane. And honestly, I'm historically not a great spender. Um, and now I've got the business and I'm like putting money here and there into that. So uh, buying a house is probably still a year away, but definitely just the, the stability that comes with that. And prop like the, I'm sure that my mortgage will be like way lower than my rent. My rent right now is almost 2,200 a month. Oh my God. What? I know. I know. Ridiculous. But also keep in mind, I, I feel like the housing market where you're at is like extremely nice and it's really fair. It like is. The prices here are insane. Well, uh, so we're, I'm on the outskirts of the capital. So it's not the, it's not the best that it could be. Like my, my house, it's probably certainly, certainly better than where you're at by the, by the sounds of it. But my house was like, uh, I think we ended up paying 170 something for it. And it's not, it's not like the best house ever. That's kind of like mid tier. But that's incredible. Like for, for that price, mid tier is awesome. <laughs> Cause here mid tier is like 280. Yeah. Screw that. It's, it's crazy. And so that, that's that, definitely so, one of the other uh, things we want to move out of state and uh, we're just not quite ready because we've got a bunch of family here. So it's like, we're trying to navigate that particular conundrum. Yeah, definitely. And, uh, yeah, that, so the Midwest is great to work remotely because it's a lot cheaper. And usually, you know, if you work remotely, you're able to to find a gig that's that's from these um, like uh, coast cities, so that they can just pay you more. But you know, it's still the Midwest, and the Midwest is not the best place. But I mean, you're in Florida, so almost anywhere is a step up. <laughs> Come on, I do, it actually is like that though. Like that, that's supposed to be a joke, but it's actually like that. Yeah. I mean, if you want to, uh, come on over to Michigan <laughs> It uh, it, most things are cheap and it's, it's a swing state, so it's not always terrible. True. I'll have to give it a look, man. Winters suck, but the summer sure is nice. I feel like that might be a, just a good life saying in general. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Touche. Cool. All right, man. Thanks again for coming on. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. All right, folks, that wraps it up for this episode of The Virtual World. Make sure to stay tuned for the upcoming episodes. Pretty soon, I'll be interviewing a couple of indie VR developers who have some really great insight into the market and what it takes to do well in the XR space. I also have another really juicy interview coming up that I'm very excited about. 
can't reveal any details yet, so make sure to follow me on social media. You can find me on Twitter at TYTR underscore Dev. This is Ty signing off. Mm-hmm.